The most important movements now pose no demands. In their midst are those who refuse labels. Joining them together is the notion that there can be no political solution. Their ranks swell in the riots that now fill the streets, reverberate through the prisons, and simmer in refugee detention centers. The passion is felt in the red-hot rage of radical queers who respond by bashing back. It has spread like wildfire before. Just a decade ago, the movements of the squares toppled many governments, and it continues daily in those who insist that Black Lives Matter. What is most curious of all is that, in the midst of so much refusal, so many of their hearts are still moved by the language of revolution. Change is coming, but as Gil Scott Heron said, the revolution will not be televised. It will not ask for time at the next presidential debate. It will not be interviewed on the front page of your favorite news site. Though they might try, it will not be included in any party's platform. Even those grassroots organizations that, quote, work at the neighborhood level will not recognize it. It is the politics of the unseen, and this book is for them. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of Machine Air and Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Adkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guests, consider tossing us a buck a month at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H or leave us a review on iTunes. And today we are very pleased to bring to you a guest who doesn't really need much introduction at all, Andrew, Andrew Culp. Thanks for coming on the show, Andrew. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. And I do mean that. I, I do think that uh, your rise to sort of uh, internet fame, at least, right? Blogosphere is, is, was obviously a big help with this. I'm not sure how much blogs are active these days. I've kind of gotten away from that. But, you know, um, obviously, before diving into some of your work, especially your new book, A Gorilla's Guide to Refusal, we always like to kind of start a little bit just to get to know you a little bit better. And just in case you do need an introduction for the listeners, you know, we like to kind of ask about our guests, how they got into, you know, what we consider their passion or their, their metier, you know, how, do you remember sort of your first encounters with philosophy and quote unquote theory and even like Deleuze and Guattari? Do you want to tell us like a little bit about this? Because I, I love these origin stories. They're always kind of fascinating to, to hear everybody, their own little personal anecdote for how this became this encounter with that forced us to think. There's always this sort of danger when reducing thought to a biography or a history, but you know, maybe there'll be something interesting or important in mind. I guess I first encountered theory in and through the critical turn in international relations. Mm-hmm. 
and in particular Foucault as a figure mm-hmm. within it. I grew up in Nebraska, a rather conservative state mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. And I was encouraged to take high school debate. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's just what was going on in my life. You know, I, I thought I was going to be a musician. Uh, that didn't be what I turned my life toward. But I joined in debate and I was pretty good at it. And then I started doing my own research and finding what was popular in, you know, it's generally pretty policy focused, but Mm -hmm. there had been this turn for the last sort of decade or two of reading critical literature. First, it came through CLS and CRT, um, which because policy debaters read a lot of live reviews, and then they started you know, really reading the literature itself. Um, Mm -hmm. There was critical turn in international relations, but then I kept moving more and more away from the law or the way in which political science will study politics and more and more towards politics as a way of life or as culture or refusal. And for a while, I'd completely sworn off electoral and parliamentary and even movement politics because I found that Mm -hmm. it it's just sort of a boring rehearsal. And I often even knew the outcome before it even happened. And then I was in an ethics class and the professor showed the Weather Underground documentary. Ooh. I was like, wow, there is politics outside of these boring parliamentary procedures. Right. And that was it. That was it. And so for me, it's always been the sort of connection between the two, between militant or non legislative politics and theory. And, you know, I sort of ate my fill of Foucault, who I still consider incredibly important, um, Mm. really foundational in how I see the world. But then I thought, hey, you know, Foucault is a bit too much in the, you know, resistance and power and its intersection within some sort of agonistic struggle. And for me, D&G just opened up the outside into this really fascinating world. Maybe that's a little bit too much. I don't know, but that- No, no, no. Again, yeah. That's actually really helpful, and uh, and, it, and it makes a lot of sense to to consider the the lines of convergence and divergence with Deleuze, Foucault, Guattari, and sort of kind of it kind of makes sense. Then you know, two birds, one stone, a- answering how Deleuze and Guattari kind of help to shift your focus, or at least to to show you a, another path, another line. Yeah, and you know, it threw me into action is what mm-hmm. happened too. the weather underground documentary. I then got Bill Ayer's autobiography from the library, maybe that day or the day after. And I just read it all in maybe one or two sittings. Mm-hmm. It's like, this, this is it, you know, work professional political jobs for a while, decided that they were too trapped in a sense of uh, artificial urgency. And it was too much like a marketing or promotional campaign. I mean, that said it was great training in direct action. It made my first sort of real key connection with, well, actually my second key connection with anarchism, mm-hmm. you know, I'd known anarchism previously, but considered it more of like a joke or a game or a passing idea. And then it became very serious. And I would say that, you know, I don't know, there's this, this line that comes from the invisible committee, which is their day is sort of passed at this point, I think. So it's actually novel to, to say it, but they have this sort of joke that they say where they're like, to my anarchist friends, I'm too, they, they always dismiss me as too much of a communist. And to my communist friends, they always dismiss me as too much of an anarchist. And that's kind okay. of where I find myself. And I sort of circulate in both communities and have for quite a while. And I consider that really sort of where the rubber hits the road and really essential to politics, like not just writing, but my contribution is to be around and participate in, in the political activity of both groups, but always sort of mm-hmm. from this nomadic margin that maybe yeah. you know, DNG will give us a great model for. 
I like that. And, you know, you talk about your background in debate. I noticed, I wanted to ask, you know, you were, and I'm not sure where you are now, so I'd like to ask that, but you were a professor of rhetoric at Whitman College, I think was, is that, is that still current? I was there for two years. Okay. And Whitman is this really (laughs) funny place. Walla Walla, Washington. Okay. Town of 30,000 in Eastern Washington. It put me in proximity to the Pacific Northwest, which has a deep radical heritage, green anarchy, indigenous politics, sort of queer anarchism that it's really where my heart lies. But Mm -hmm. now I'm in Los Angeles and I teach at a weird art school, experimental art school, the California Institute of the Arts, CalArts. Some people know it through its animation department because they uh, they sort of pump out Pixar animators, but it's- gotcha. It's real heritage is with the avant-garde. It was founded by Fluxus artists back in the 60s and 70s with, you know, this Disney contingent as well. And it's always had some of the most experimental sort of out there stuff. And I was just at a graduation last night and it really reminded me why I'm there because, you know, of course we don't wear robes and the students are wearing like costumes and uh, <laughs> awesome. um, all kinds of crazy stuff. And they're yeah. just like... They're like getting up and walking around and talking to each other as the ceremony is going on, like pouring each other champagne and drinks. There's one point which we had to duck because the champagne cork had flown so <laughs> yeah. high into the sky that it was going to hit everyone there. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, that's that's a proper celebration, yeah. right? Yeah, love yeah, it. It's great. Now, Cooper informed me, and I just wanted to back this up. Cooper informed me you studied with Eugene Holland at one point. Well, I, I made that assumption because you, oh, you made I that was, assumption. I was looking through the acknowledgements in the back of the book and I was saw okay, okay. Ohio State and then uh, there's a direct Gene Holland. So we just had oh, him on yeah. last week. Oh, I love Gene. Oh, he's yeah. great. No, I, I went, so when I was finishing my undergrad, I was doing all this political work, but I had this idea that I also wanted to do like theory. Mm-hmm. And so I emailed maybe like, well, I, <laughs> it's, it's so nerdy. Created a spreadsheet of all of my favorite sort of I love it. Deleuzians. I love it. <laughs> sounds like me. It sounds like me. Yeah. So I, I embrace it. Yeah, I embrace yeah. it. Yeah. I emailed like three or four of them and I was like, if you were me, like my background, I'm interested in politics. I mm-hmm. take more of a humanist approach, but at the same time, I don't want to get stuck in commentary or doing like French studies or something like that. Right. Like, who would you study with? And John Protevi emailed me. He's like, oh, you need to study with. Eugene Holland at the Ohio yeah. State University. It's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, back to Midwest for me. <laughs> that's that's great. I mean, we had we had uh, yeah, we had Protevion as well. <laughs> we had we had Protevion a few months back because of his new book, which is also in the Forerunners. What is yeah, called? Edges, Edges, of, the Edges of the State. Yeah, yeah it. it's, it's yeah. also in the Forerunners collection that that your Dark Deleuze shows up in. I'll we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but you know we uh, we had Eugene on last week, and what I think is interesting is how much convergence at least in certain key points, his book, Nomad Citizenship, has with your new book, particularly, you know, this notion of, of a kind of intensive escape, you know, just to anticipate a little bit to the book that you've just released. Do you see, do you think that Eugene had, had some, some influence in some of the books that he's written, and particularly his kind of dedication to schizoanalysis, for example? And, you know, you're right, he is kind of one of the few Anglophone Deleuze kind of adjacent scholars. He's not just a Deleuze scholar, but you know what I'm saying, that actually focus on politics. Oh, yeah. I mean, I knew that I was going to school to study with him. I was there Mm -hmm. for six and a half years. And 
I mean, he called me to accept me in the program on the day that I helped lead a uh, occupation of a school interstate. And then some people have been arrested. And so he like calls me and (laughs) I'm standing outside a school administration building and people are like violently hitting the windows. (laughs) They're almost about to break. And he's like, congratulations. You know, I'm so excited to work with you. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Just to let you know, I'm kind of in the middle of some crazy thing right now, but I'm so glad to get your call. (laughs) That's wonderful. And then I guess the rest is history. You know, I took multiple independent studies with him where it's Mm -hmm. just like read Antietipus over a semester. And just Mm -hmm. like every week I go into his office and talk his ear off for two, two hours and just ask him questions. I'm like, do I have this right? Do I have that right? How does this all sort of come together? He taught a thousand plateaus class where it was Mm -hmm. a whole semester and it's just a group of students. And we just read a thousand plateaus, like start to finish. And so, you know, I can't think of a better teacher in this because he just knew it so well. Yeah. And he understood where it came out of as well. I don't know if he mm-hmm. talked about his background as much, but, you know, he did French studies at UC San Diego with Frederick mm-hmm. Jameson, Michel Desarteau, and then went on to do a postdoc with Leotard. And so he was just, he was there. I mean, he knew all the people, he knew structuralism, he knew his Roman Jakobsen as well as he knew his Pierre Clasp, you know, and so like, yeah. Yeah, he did. He didn't mention Leotard, but he did mention. Oh uh, man, he, he did. He did. We would have <laughs> mentioned Marcuse. He mentioned Marcuse, mm-hmm. which which I thought was. I mean, he's got a pedigree, right? You right. know. Yeah. You know, mentioning Marcuse and, and getting to talk to him about anti Oedipus. You know that. So he carried that on to a generation, and I can see it makes a lot clearer than my my hunch that some of the ways that Eugene Holland deploys a thousand plateaus, we can see that making a, a big impact. I mean, you, you make it pretty clear in the very beginning of, of a guerrilla's guide to refusal, sort of what you take from it, particularly becoming imperceptible and how that itself kind of forms one of the refrains of, of the whole book. I mean, he wrote Nomad Citizenship as I was studying with him. So mm-hmm. that absolutely sort of grew out of our conversation. I mean, I'm certainly not going to take too much credit for it, but like, you know, our conversations were happening and we're sort mm-hmm. of like pushing each other back and forth. And then the let's say the spine for Gorilla Guide began as my dissertation, so absolutely under his mentorship and advisement gotcha. and everything. I mean, it's substantially rewritten. Like if you were to look at my dissertation, you'd say, "Oh, it's kind of parts of it <laughs> there." But you know, I I wrote a lot of the basic apparatus mm-hmm. before I wrote my Dilla's book, and so interesting. In some, ways, in some ways, it's actually kind of backwards. You know, very quickly, I know you've. You maybe are, are sick of talking about the Dark Dilla's book, um, no, I love but it. I did want to at least ask, I reviewed it again, you know, because I was trying to parse out some of the resonances, some of the, the contiguities between the two books. And so it makes sense that if you have already had some of that infrastructure in place before even writing Dark Dilla's in 2016 or, or when it was published, and I guess that well, you've already kind of asked or answered the question I was going to ask, which was about looking back. Do you see uh, the sort of resonances and some of the foundational work, which you kind of pointed out that, yeah, it's there. I guess the other question is, because you do allude to it, at least broadly in Dark Deleuze, why you wrote the book. But do you want to say just a little bit, just to remind the, the listeners who, who may not have seen it and uh, and just maybe your own personal spin to it? this need to, if not correct, you know, the record, but at least to provide this alternative, you know, a, a buggering, if you will, of Deleuze that would still be his offspring, however monstrous. Do you want to sort of say 
some of the impetus behind your alternative, if I can use that word, Deleuze? Yeah. So as I've been faculty and doing independent studies and talking to students about Deleuze, which is interesting. I mean, I'm not in a philosophy program, so mm-hmm. it means that I don't teach Deleuze every semester or every right. year, though it seems like every spring there are at least a couple of students who want to do an independent study where we read at least a little bit. I feel like there's been one big, big, big thing that's been missed about Deleuze that shows up in my Dark Deleuze book, but Mm -hmm. I think is a bigger overarching point that is now how I sort of introduce him to everybody now. And it's that he hates philosophy that is reduced to a succession of thinkers in which the next person is just sort of adding a reference or even worse, a footnote to everything that came before it. Yeah. And so he really believes the idea of the creative act mm-hmm. or the creative approach. And the worst cardinal sin is to become a commentator or an imitator. And so that means that the majority of what counts as sort of academic scholarship on a thinker, he has very little patience for. I mean, he reads some of it, I suppose, even footnotes a little bit. But for him, the worst thing you could do is to write a book on him. <laughs> and I did that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but this this is that first essay that's published in the English edition negotiations, or I guess it's in the French negotiations as well. Mm. But you know, reading just a little bit of the background on Letter to a Harsh Critic, mm-hmm. you get a really clear sense of this, where, you know, he had this very doting student, Quasol, who, you know, comes to him one day and says, you're so great. I need to write a book about you. And he says, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's like, no, don't <laughs> waste of time. No greater insult than writing a book about me. And so Quasol gets like really pissed off and writes a book about him, but instead it's this epic denunciation of yes. Deleuze. <laughs> and in the sort of like a uh, process of this happening, Quasol's like, okay, Deleuze, why don't we have just a little like epistolary exchange? Maybe it'll show up as an appendix in the book or whatever. And then lo and behold, it shows up as the preface, as if he's sort of, as Deleuze is sort of being invited to, right. you know, present this book in, in all of its glory. And so he's just like really, I don't know if the lack of a better term, he's just like really snarky and bitchy. And he's just like, no way, like, I can't believe this happened. <laughs> so we get this whole thing about the worst thing in philosophy is to simply comment on other people's work and it's parasitic and this, that, and the other thing. And so that's what I try and tell my students now too. I'm like, the best way to be a Deleuzean is not to be faithful to the Deleuzean project and simply mostly extend his work or find a situation or a case in which it hasn't yet been explored. It's to really sort of make a break from him at a certain point, come up with your own true, genuine, creative and original idea and move that forward. And so for me, I suppose that's what I did. What I'd seen is there had become a sort of calcified Deleuze that had become a sort of political moderate that had been just right. about extending older philosophical systems, whether it be materialism or this sort of like new materialist Spinoza or something. And that I'd seen it politically working out in the way in which various people had 
used Deleuze in the sort of anti-globalization movement and the sort of uptake of autonomous philosophy that was very vitalist and was affirmative and in fact had taken all of the sort of critical bite out of it. And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe I just crank it up to 11, but I'm like, no, it's not about believing the world. It's about finding Destroying a way to hate it. the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Cataclysm, destruction, ending the world, you know, you know, it's not just the war machine about synthetic connections, which sort of Paul Patton has in his early Deleuze political book. It's about right. war machine is waging war. And that's, that's what we need. I do appreciate that. And because there is, I mean, this is kind of Laura Wells reading of Deleuze and, and what is philosophy. It's, it's kind of this, I mean, he's very kind of critical, especially at the end, this, this notion that philosophy is, is affirmative and it's in when really it's like stillborn and and I'll leave that to one side you know because I have my own I have my own doubts about Laura Wells I'm not gonna say honesty but you know he's he's a little polemical let's just say in that and so I was thinking about that when I was reading your Dark Deleuze book and how that side of Deleuze was perhaps what kind of part of what Laura Well was poking at was was sort of the the calcified version of him, you know, this uh, this affirmative. Um, it can't be a firm affirmation, as you point out, because precisely that's Nietzsche's ass, right? That's the donkey that can't say no. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you're you're right about sort of pointing out precisely. I mean, this is clearest in difference repetition and logic of sense, where the refrain over and over is about the, you know, with the eternal return, it's all, it's always about the death of God, the death of the self, or as you call it, the death of man. And of course, the death of the world, these three destructions are necessary to affirm chance. So it's not simple affirmation. There is a, there is a negative part of the cycle. Perhaps the most cryptic plateau in a thousand plateaus actually stages this in this uh, cataclysmic world ending way. And I'm alluding to the geology of morals plateau, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, to pick up that Nietzschean thread and pull it a bit. And so really when it comes down to it, there are three strata of the earth or of the universe. And it's, you know, okay, very basic material stuff, mountains, molecules, everything in between. And then, so that's the inorganic. And then there's the organic and that's, you know, plants, but it can also be, you know, bacterium or everything that the new mm-hmm. materials really care about. And then there's <laughs> the, the interesting one that's uh, the alloplastic. And, you know, this is where D&G do their sort of proto animal studies thing. And they say, well, it's anything that has culture. And of course they love ethology and animal studies. And so, you know, that's really where territoriality comes in in an interesting or an important way. You know, a a friend, Ricky Crano in seminar once was just like, it's territoriality, just, you know, like a dog marking their territory. Like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then within the alloplastic, what it does, it is, it gives this amazing capacity to undo the other strata through a deterritorialization to sort of raise it to these amazing, new, unexpected, wacky, complex levels. And as Professor Challenger is giving his lecture, sort of building up these various strata, it ends with him, okay, everyone remembers turning into a lobster, but then it also ends with this wild reference to H.P. Lovecraft and like Mm -hmm. a tentacular cosmos that is just like falling apart as it's being blasted into like (laughs) infinity. And that's, that's the image of the future as it is coming in and invading. And so it's not just some 
you know, geoengineering of the planet to stave off climate change. Right. It is solar death. It, I mean, it's everything. Like that's really where they were already taking us. And so this, I don't want to knock him too much, but this Delanda, like carefully assembling assemblages thing. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I tried it for a year or two and it was just, no, could, I didn't, didn't feel right. Coop, I didn't want to monopolize for a moment. I, I, I know that you had a, just, just wanted to give you a chance to, sure. to butt in. Yeah, I guess I can just butt in with a, what is it? A, a little break flow to the conversation and go back to, you know, because we were kind of discussing before we started recording some of the lore, I think, of is kind of interesting here relative to Andrew was one of the first people to enter to kind of get me interested in, in Guattari's solo work. So that's kind of one aspect. But I think it's also interesting, like, because Taylor was part of Theory Talk before, before, and he had a partner, Joe, there. And I think you did and ended up talking to Joe and you would talk to me as well on, on this show before Taylor joined. So I think it was kind of a funny that you would kind of like had both <laughs> you're sort of where have you trapped in between the two poles taylor yeah well i, I got the double, to the double bind so, <laughs> so I, I mean i i did i did get to interact with andrew because we collaborated on the transcript for that interview ah, okay, um gotcha. and that was kind of nice because i i had kept it kind of informal and andrew put a nice polish on it and so that's that's still available because there are some people that that perhaps don't you know, there's different ways to take in different media, right. but it is, it is interesting, right. That I kind of missed out on both ends. And so we are <laughs> right. kind of remedying that today. And I guess that I would ask, cause I'm curious about sort of what Andrew, you maybe not necessarily what you said to Coop, but how you feel Guattari's solo works, you know, have influenced you because a lot of times they get, they get left out. I mean, you know, it's a trend in the Liz studies to, to sort of drop the G from D and G and to, and to sort of treat capitalism, schizophrenia and the works they co-authored, whatever, as, as kind of solely Deleuze's trajectory. Do, do you, I guess I'm curious just for the listeners, but also, you know, what you may have said to Coop to, to kind of like pique his interest, because I do think that there, there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of great insights to be, to be mined from Guattari's solo projects. I have like the generous and the less generous account here. Um, okay. I prefer the generous. So we'll, <laughs> we'll do that one first, which is like, he's the it guy for radical politics and transversal connection through the mid-century. Maybe there are some other people, but he just has his finger on the pulse of everything. He's part of a communist youth movement through a high school teacher that got him sort of inspired John Ury's brother, actually interesting that he was part of a, uh, the hostile movement where people mm -hmm. basically just like toured and traveled and met up with others. And then he sets up shop through the sort of psychoanalytic stuff that he does never credentialed or degreed for it. I don't think, and just uses that as a different foundation to meet people, the anti-psychiatry movement. He was involved mm -hmm. with Greens and the early Green movement. He was part of, I believe, the Sorbonne occupation in 68. He was always just moving around and meeting people. You know, he's the one who helped Tony Negri. Yeah, escape. smuggled him out of Italy. <laughs> yeah. And then and then Tony went under the name Tony Guattari for a long time. <laughs> I like didn't know that. Of, That's... Yeah, he was living in um, Felix's apartment and stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. 
whenever there were like youth protests, there are famous ones in Germany and other places, Guattari would show up and they would, he was sort of feted because he was, um, he helped create support campaigns for German radicals. And in fact, you know, he helped do the support campaign for the RAF's lawyer who was French. Mm -hmm. And that sort of maybe led to the famous split between Foucault and Deleuze too, because he writes this denunciation of the French government, calls them fascists for arresting Croissant. And, you know, everyone signs onto the letter, but Foucault refused to sign onto the letter because he's like, I will not call the French government fascist, but he still shows up to the demo and he gets like beat and he gets one of his ribs cracked. He's also traveling beyond Europe too. He's spending time in Brazil. He's going to Japan quite a bit. I mean, he's just like, he's everywhere. And so Mm -hmm. who more important for this pairing to make it to make philosophy politically relevant than Guattari. Like he has to be there or else Deleuze is not politically relevant. He just becomes a commentator on the history of philosophy, the thing that he realized that he would never want to be. And we get a Leibniz book, we get a Nietzsche book, we get him on Hume, we get him on Spinoza, but yeah. logic of sense would be like maybe the wackiest text we ever got or something, which right. had a lot of the elements that turn into, you know, mm-hmm. an anti-Oedipus, but like that's, that's as political as it would get. So he's essential for that. I mean, that's my my first take. That's the generous one. And the second would be that like Deleuze kind of like uses Guattari a little bit in the same way in which he uses all these other philosophers when he writes books about them, Bergson or even like Massoc or whatever. And there's this story in the Anti-Oedipus papers, which were like the diaries that Guattari writes as they're writing Anti-Oedipus. And he says that you don't know how much this is hyperbole or him just sort of like writing things out, but he says that like Deleuze had him chained to a deck, a desk at Labor every morning. And he found that sort of intolerable because he's used to being a very social person, I think. And yeah. so he's like in his desk for like four hours. Well, it's not four hours. It's a certain amount of pages. So he used to make a, right, a certain amount of pages every day. And then once he is done with those pages, he just mails them off to Deleuze's wife, Fanny, who is like the hidden person here, like, oh my God, she does so much work. She does that right. like really invisible women's work of typing up all these pages every day. Mm-hmm. Who knows how much she's fixing it, changing it, and putting it in her own voice. So I'd love to know that someday. And that's some work that somebody needs to do. And then the Liz gets all these pages and he like grinds through it the same way he'll grind through someone like a Bergson or a Spinoza mm. and completely changes it and perverts it and makes it into this like brilliant systematized rigorous system that is anti-Oedipus. But then Guattari notes in his diary that he then goes and looks at the book and he's like, I don't even recognize myself in this anymore. What is this thing that Delis has turned me into? Mm-hmm. So at least at that point in the collaboration, Guattari is both absolutely essential because he provides the raw material and these like brilliant experimental insights. But then Delis also like really perverts him in the process too. It's the sumo wrestler or the what the lightning rod and the and the sea are all the different metaphors that Deleuze has for their collaboration. And it is a good point that you make about Fanny's input, because, you know, that really broadens our thinking when they, the famous opening lines, which you kind of mock in your own way, because I'm sure you're tired of hearing them, you know, the, you know, we were each multiplicity, blah, blah, blah. So there's already a crowd, you know, but Fanny's a part of that assemblage too. I've also heard Though I haven't followed up on it. And they said it's only been sort of real in the last couple of years. So I don't know where this is published or who's written about it. But they were saying that A Thousand Plateaus was a deep collaboration with students at the time too. And so hmm. there's a lot of hidden people's work in there that may have not even been DNG's initial insights. And we know this a little bit through Anti-Oedipus and um, Pierre Clost, who unfortunately died. I don't know if 
that's another historical point that I'm just not as clear on whether his car accident was, was he drunk? Was it suicide? Was it just an unfortunate accident or something? But who knows what a thousand plateaus would have been if Klost had had an even stronger hand in it. Because, yeah. you know, initial insights in anti-Oedipus proves so crucial through the sort of anthropology, you know, the third chapter in anthropology, but like, Geez, I think the we already know the nomadology is such an essential sort of part to the political core of Thousand Plateaus. Like, what if he had been even deeper in there? Yeah, it's true because he he wasn't around to be able to perhaps respond either after the publication or or during its composition to the fact that they do they give him a lot of credit, but they do at least kind of pose these questions and these criticisms that he he wouldn't be able to uh, to defend himself on or to give some sort of feedback on. But you're right about his central importance in the nomadology and, of course, in, in anti-Oedipus. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that it's, it's a good sort of point to bring out Guattari's centrality in this. And this is part of why I, you know, this would be if I had written dark Watari or something it's literally he's literally already dark so you just got to bring him out a little bit more into the light <laughs> at least for for delusions and and there are there are some that are that don't fall into this this trap of sort of leaving him out but i do get this question a lot about what's with Watari's occlusion and so much of it is he's not really accepted by psychoanalytic circles at least it's kind of maybe a little bit underground maybe some of his his ideas but schizoanalysis never obviously became its own kind of movement. He's not really well, accepted it by the- did a little bit. Okay. Okay. So Brazil. Okay. True. I, that's, that's true. That's true. I also, who else was I talking to who was saying that there's just like, there are schizoanalysts. I mean, I know it's a very small group, but I've been connected with Greek Deleuze Guattarians for a couple years now. Okay. And their reception of Deleuze actually came through, or actually came through Guattari mm-hmm. in part, who showed up there for the closing of one of their really terrible asylums, I think in the 70s. And yeah. he was a really essential part of it. And then one of the analysts who's, she's a very senior figure now. She's the one who actually translated my book. She said she's, you know, a Lacanian by training, and it's maybe the substrate on which everything sort of grows, but she considers herself as equally Guattarian now. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it has been taken up by individual figures or even it's grown in small communities, but you're right. It, it never became the sort of, you know, corner shop thing, or it never became the school that like a Lacanian approach. Right. Somebody that I used to talk to frequently, Paul Baines, he, he would talk about Brazilian schizoanalysts. So I shouldn't leave them out of the picture What's even more apparent is, is, you know, the history of philosophy will always have a home for Deleuze, no matter how much he, he may have buggered it. And yet Guattari, perhaps because he never, you know, claimed the title of philosopher in any broad sense, you know, he's kind of left out of that or he's just kind of an adjacent figure. So it always seems like Guattari, as you said, he's, he's always so mobile and, and maybe so adjacent to all these different these different movements, but perhaps not central to to any of them that he just kind of, he's the mad scientist, as I always like to to call him. Absolutely. You know, from what I know about his biography, I think he went to study pharmacy and wasn't good enough at chemistry. So he never finished college. You know, he's worked, he spends his whole life in a mental health institution as a practitioner, but I think probably was never really credentialed in any serious way. You know, he writes philosophy without ever being a philosopher. He's this person who... If people were being mean, they would say he's just sort of like a self-taught autodidact. Or something. Yeah. But he's in the greatest way because he doesn't care about the authority 
yes. in which so many people sort of make it boring and just an exercise and an exercise of power and dominance over others. And for him, mm. he just like follows the thread. He's a great, you know, there's this like apocryphal line of Nietzsche saying he wanted to be the first philosopher who philosophizes with his nose, like <laughs> <Yes>. taking- <laughs> taking intuition to the nth degree like that's Guattari. he just he just follows everything with his nose and it makes him very timely sometimes like his connection to cybernetics is something that i'm like i don't know i don't i don't know if that's something that i need or want in 2022 but mm -hmm. at the same time like it's brilliant and he's making all of these amazing interventions cooper did that did that kind of give some of the flavor of what piqued your interest well, initially I I mean, it was a lot simpler than that, honestly. It was actually because I, at the time, you know, I was just kind of getting my feet wet with psychoanalysis and Lacan and having just a fascination with Lacan at the time. And I had no idea about Guattari studying under Lacan, et cetera. So, and being his driver and all these different sort of interactions. So that, that kind of spurred my, I was like, oh, okay, interesting. All right. I was already sort of interested in Deleuze and Guattari's work as well. So this was just, this sort of sent me on like a whole, this got me really excited, I think, about Guattari in particular. And then some other folks had mentioned his work as well. But it was, yeah, it was just very much simpler. I mean, it's funny too, because I'm, we I'm wearing my philosopher's uh, kit today with the uh, the graph of desire. Mm -hmm. You can see this. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Kurt Tripp, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's also just that, you know, Guattari, where he's just like, I was a Lacanian. I thought Anti-Oedipus was a Lacanian book, and then it just didn't, didn't pan out. And so, you know, that that lovely title of that interview he does later it says Lacan was an event in my life. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was uh -huh. there and then it passed. <laughs> I'm sure you've read the, or, or at least skimmed through the the cross biography or whatever. And there's, you know, there's little stories about Lacan that we've, we've talked about on here. The one that, that I always love thinking about is besides the one where he calls them in, into his office, but they have to wait out into the waiting room for, you know, however many hours. And then he's just like, He's like, these guys knows, know what's up. You know, they, they wrote a book. You should be more like them. But the one I really love is Lacan getting drunk and, and Del you know, at dinner with Deleuze and like Deleuze. Just yeah, where Deleuze drinks him under the table. <laughs> but he, he's, a, he's also like very patient with him because Lacan wants to go back to his house. And there's just, there's just, it just seems like, like this. I don't know. I, I never knew how to read the scene, you know, that, that Deleuze right. is just being super charitable and just putting up with this, uh, you know, this drunken celebrity and, uh, yeah, hard to say, right. I mean, Lacan is, is kind of on the one hand, he's an enigma on the other hand, in his public persona, he is this larger than life sort of performance. Right. The, the opposite of being imperceptible, right. That might be a good segue into the, into imperceptibility. Yes. Well, you know, some of my best friends are Lacanians, so I, <laughs> I don't want to overplay right. the DNG Lacan difference because in fact, the post uh, neo-constitutive real like Slovenian people, neo-Lacanians are returning a lot to Deleuze these days. Maybe not as much as Quattri, but they'll have to get over that. Janelle Watson has this really great comparative essay on Butler versus Quattri that people oh, should look out for schizoanalysis, but yeah. We've talked about her book and we'd love to get her on. I, I think I have to find a working email for her, but she's one of the few to to write, you know, on Guattari more extensively. Yeah. And she's got the book on there on diagrammatics, I think, mm -hmm. in particular, that sounds really fascinating. Yeah. She kind of systematized that work, I think, before Machinic Unconscious was completely translated too. So it was sort of. Yes a really great sort of sampler for people who either hadn't found or didn't have access or couldn't read that and um, really sort of laying it all out. 
So I did want to ask really quickly about in 2016, we've already mentioned that's when Dark Deleuze came out and you said that you already had a lot of the framework for the current book. Before looking at A Gorilla's Guide to Refusal, I wanted to ask a little bit about Hostess. And I was reading through the introductory essay to the first volume. And I don't want to downplay your two collaborators, but I did notice some of the lines of thought, you know, escape, cruelty, sort of a little bit of hostility to prefiguration, which shows up a little bit in um, in Gorilla's Guide. Do you want to say a little bit about, I don't know what, if we call it a, a journal or just, do you want to say a little bit about Hostess and what the impetus behind that was and, and how it relates to, to your other work? I'll give an anecdote again. I don't know if this is helpful. No, this but, is great. We um, love anecdotes. I took a Foucault class with someone who was at Berkeley with Foucault. And it's actually, he's the one who took that famous photograph where it's, you know, the students had given Foucault the cowboy hat. (laughs) So unfortunately he's not in the picture because he's the one taking the picture, but I took a Foucault class. I took like, I don't know, like four Foucault classes, grad school or something. I don't even know why. Cause I like, at a certain point, it's like, I know too much Foucault or something. (laughs) Um, But I was talking to that professor or maybe it was a different professor in office hours. I was like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm really interested in politics. I don't know if academia really makes space for the type of politics that I want. What do I do? And that person's response was, well, just do both. Write the real politics that you want on the side, and then also do your really rigorous, conventional, if not even conservative, scholarly work Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand. And I just... I didn't like that, but I thought yeah. that that's what I had to do. Mm-hmm. Everyone in academia is obsessed with professionalization right now. They think that there's some like hidden, hidden key or hidden path to getting hired. And so they're willing yeah. to just bend over backwards in order to do that. Newsflash, there isn't. It's just like a totally <laughs> fucked <laughs> yeah. industry right now. And so Hostess was like, I was trying to write conventional or more conventional academic work on the one hand and just like, this is my outlet for all of the political (laughs) stuff on the other. It's written basically the same time as Dark Deleuze. I mean, like Dark Deleuze initially was just like a blog post. Interesting. Maybe in like 2011, it was just a chart. It's three quarters of the same chart that shows up in the book that sort of organizes the body sections. Right. The contraries that you you have. Is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. So that was a chart. And then I think, yeah, I started writing Hostess and solicited input and everything the summer before I started my first job out of grad school. And it was just, just like pouring out all of my feelings about politics. And then it comes across very visceral summer after. Yeah. It comes across very viscerally and, and I do love it, but you know, I just, uh, that's kind of why I had to ask and I I didn't mean to interrupt you. Just wanted to, 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 to spur you on, you know, um, why I was interested. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's written without a lot of references or footnotes because the idea is that like yeah. smart people with interest should be able to read this. And so it's like parsed in a way that that just sort of makes sense. Whereas like the Deleuze stuff is very philosophical. You know, mm-hmm. I've tried to have people to encourage people to read it who don't have a background in philosophy. A few people sort of like use it to get inspired and to move on to other things. But a lot of people say just like, I just, it's not possible. And yeah. it's funny, like I was emailing and corresponding with two or three people as I wrote the Deleuze book, which I wrote basically in a month. I mean, I've been preparing my whole life for it. So just right. Right. But but I I wrote it while I was sort of like living in some weird woman's basement in the (laughs) university of Washington and like going there during the day. And um, 
one of those people is is one of the deep collaborators for Hostess. And so then Hostess 2 is more of a collaboration with me and them and then you know a third person. And then Hostess 3 is like almost done, but I just need to write the draft, opening draft for an essay on fuck the police, like why I don't like the police. And I keep going back and forth because I don't think most people have a good reason for fuck the police. Obviously, <laughs> should, like it's terrible. The police sucks. Yeah. Um, but like I want to really get to the heart of why the police is terrible. More than just like a historical legacy of being involved in slave catching or putting down labor revolts, which it is and it continues to do. But like, what is something like philosophically central to what the police gotcha. is and why we should oppose it? And then once we write that, then Hostess 3 will be out. And it's called Fuck the Police because it's very much about like not just the notion, but the slogan and the circulation of, of anti police stuff. You answer my follow up, which was just if, if there was going to be another uh, another issue. And so that's. That's good to hear. And it, and it, and it sounds like can give you a little taster of it too. Yes, please. I mean, you know. So Foucault and security, security territory population has a chapter or really a lecture on the police that Mm -hmm. people have, people have picked up on perhaps most notably is, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but Mark Neoclius who wrote a book on like police as social order in the early 2000s, and then just came out with a really great, more recent one called a critical theory of the police or police power or something like that. Oh, wow. Okay. So he's already sort of parsed this a bit, but the key insight in this that I don't think people have picked up on is Foucault traces the genealogy of the term polis that we know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, as in city, but then also stands in for the people. It becomes the public of which we have republicanism. But then that's also the term from which we get politics, police, and policy. Foucault goes to this early modern period for the rationalization of the state. You know, people usually turn to Weber for this, but it could be a number of different thinkers. And he's like, this is when police, politics, and policy are indistinguishable, they're indiscernibly the right. same thing. And that I think his argument is then it still is. They're just three parts of the same basic thing. And so I think that's going to be the core of our argument that policy, police, and politics all deserve criticism with the same brushstroke. This may sound banal or like a truism, but we kind of see that in the tripartite American institution where the executive branch is literally enforcing the laws, right? And so it's it's kind of that, that's where they all meet and become materially actionable. Yeah, absolutely. Coop, I, I, uh, I keep monopolizing. No, you're good. But, <laughs> good. I mean, I I was just going to perhaps lead into maybe the sort of as we kind of move into the new book, the Gorilla Guide, just to say that I think we I think we we needed a book like this. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like it's a uh, that's the first thought I had upon you know just it, reading the the cold open, for example. That just I don't know. We needed a book like this. I, and I just wanted to say that for whatever that's worth. I just felt this is something needed for, I guess, a sort of politics of the. I don't know if I want to say anarchism, but what I don't know what it's hard to define exactly like this, this sort of balance you sort of discussed about walking this knife's head between the communist mm-hmm. and the anarchist strains mm-hmm. of thought. But I, I felt this was a little bit more in the sort of sort of at least spiritually in kind of an anarchist tradition or from a place. And um, I just felt like we we really needed someone. We need something new on that side of the fence, I think. So I no, just wanted you. to. Yeah, I just wanted to say that. And. The language, the writing was very inspirational. The attitude, the passion comes through in the writing. So mm-hmm. I think just to start out, that's kind of, I just wanted to get that out there. 
You know, there was a line that I wrote for the back cover material because, you know, authors tend to sort of write the first draft of the back cover material. And depending on how attentive and uh, um, useful, I don't know, like how how good or how how much like labor they put into marketing, some of them none. But like if you're lucky, they like also give you input. There's a whole section of the back cover that I wrote that, that sort of got excerpted or that got cut out. And it was that, you know, I wrote many of the chapters as short snippets so they could be read on the go. And then the two examples I gave were like on the go, both on your way to like a demo or a rally, or maybe I said riot because riot's better than, (laughs) Um, or like when you sneak time at work, Mm -hmm. I think we all have experiences like that where it's like, yes, you know, I'm currently doing a slow, intensive reading of bad use being an event. And that's the sort of thing you just have to commit hours at a time to like yeah. read carefully or else it's just not going to stick. But I love those, those like older autonomy media and semiotext pocket books mm-hmm. where you could tell that people are just like sitting in a subway in New York or, you know, in a bus somewhere and they can read a section, put it down, get inspired, think a little bit, look out the window and then, you know, pick it back up and that it makes sense. And that's very much what I wanted for this book too. I want people to be able to like pick up a part of it, get inspired. But like I said at the top, to take a creative approach to it. I don't want adherents or acolytes or followers or whatever. I don't need people to pick a particular political tendency as the correct or righteous one. It's very much just like to then themselves take the next step. And you could see the same type of structure in well, obviously in Dark Deliz, that's kind of forced by the Forerunner series, but you can see that same structure there. But also in the in that introductory essay in Hostis, it had a similar type of, you know, small subsections. And I like that you bring back up a, a thread that's very clear in that introductory essay, which is about this this question of of you know virtue and this question of morality, right? And like being on the right side of history and all that stuff, and how that is kind of noxious. And it needs to be looked at critically. It's not a good time to be a Nietzschean, you know, with this new Dominic <laughs> Lasardo book that's oh, come God. out that yeah. all, the, uh, all the socialists are like, Nietzsche's doomed figure. You don't have to read him anymore. Nietzsche's canceled, I guess. Yeah, Nietzsche's you know, canceled. Right. Thanks. Feminists <laughs> have always rightly had a good critique of Nietzsche. And mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're correct. Nietzsche was this like miserable incel, you know? Yes. Yes. So we need to avoid the incel Nietzsche. But Look, I'm enough of Deleuzean to say in Nietzsche contains multiplicities. You don't mm-hmm. need to <laughs> yeah. take all of it on board at once. One yeah. or several um, Nietzsches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely several. several definitely several. <laughs> Even in some of his most misogynistic moments, there are, you can see he's also undermining that narrative as well. I'm not going to say that, that, you know, there is, it's obviously there, but there is a way in which he kind of, he always smuggles in a kind of a swerve. Like I think of the, you know, when, when going to meet a woman, you know, remember to bring your whip. And of course that sounds awful until you realize, well, it's precisely the fact that you have to have reinforcements, right? You, you or, need, or okay. you could be Emma Goldman and uh-huh. be the woman with the whip and start whipping Johan Most as he's trying to cost you at your, your lecture. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, and there is that there is that picture, what is it, with uh, Salome and is it Burkhart? He and they're next to, what, a, a horse and carriage and, and she's got the whip in the picture. Is, isn't that right? I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the people in that. Uh, I may be 
so it is reversed from that from that little aphorism. Anyway, you're right. Well, to, you know, to, to bring back morality, I think is a terrible substance for politics. Right. I think we saw that with the pandemic, you know, mm-hmm. like what was one of the only resources we had in order to try and get people to care for each other. And it was public shaming. I tried yep. to do as much as I could, but you know, <laughs> it just doesn't work so well. Right. And it can reinforce and, resistance in yeah. a certain way. Oh, absolutely. No wonder so much the right is willing to be these sort of like transgressive arrested development man children and that sort of thing. Cause they're like, they're trying to say that they're like above morality mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. true. Morality makes for bad politics. Yeah. It's not effective. Right. And so that's, that's what I talk about cruelty or even it's like the form of materialism that I like. It's, it's Deleuze's materialism too. He has this cruel ontology. Yeah. Where he's just like, you know, life is going to kick you in the ass regardless if you, you know, believe in it or care of it or whatever it's, it's there. And so, you know, we need a politics that's like that as well. It's not trying to just win the the PR war or to do a form of pressure politics that's appealing to people's like best intentions or all yeah. of the things that the American left has been reduced to in the last 50 years. You point out how very quickly, you know, riots and general unrest can easily be co-opted back into policy demands. And then that gets played out above board in this morality theater. Even Martin Luther King had a place for riots. Mm -hmm. And so it is so absurd that so much of the American left these days is just so quiet. They're so quiet around abortion right now. Yeah. They'll march to a aesthetic object of representation, like a courthouse or a, like a city hall, but will they disrupt traffic? Will they shut down hospitals? Will they do any of the things that really gum up the gears that make people make people pay attention and move forward? I don't know. It's what people need. It's been successful in other places, but it shows one more time of this like American exceptionalism where, you know, we or they think they're ahead of everyone else, but in fact, they're just so tragically behind. You know, right. Latin America through the green revolution or the green feminist movements of the last you know, few decades, way, way, way ahead of the United States on this, for instance. I mean, you could see this in, uh, I know that one of the pictures that circulated pretty widely on Twitter was, I believe it was in Mexico, and I'm not sure how many years ago, but they went to the I don't know, their their courthouses or their Supreme Court or whatever and vandalized and made an uproar and it kind of got abortion decriminalized very quickly. And so that occupied. That, yeah, right. So so that, these great pictures of them like going into these like very stately mm-hmm. government offices and then vandalizing them and even taking all the oil portraits off the wall and drawing on them or doing things like that. Like if someone's going to do image politics, that's the way you do image politics. And here in the US, it's like, it's funny, the QAnon Storm the Capitol people did a little bit of this. Yeah. And the left is so obsessed with punishing them for it right now, which is like, okay, yes, punish them. But it means that the sort of Faustian bargain of this is the US is all about returning civility, moving according to procedure, um, begging at the feet of representatives to make decisions for them. And it's going to be the most centrist, moral, ascetic yeah. 
enslavish idea. I mean, I don't want to use the term slave too much because of the, the black studies element of it, but like in this Nietzschean tradition, just people minimizing and shrinking themselves, thinking that people will respond to that. And yeah. it's, it's the worst. That's, I think that's where we are, especially in the US right now. You hit the nail on his head when you said the word aesthetic. That not, not just rings with Nietzsche as we've been talking, but Eugene Holland comes back to that's a refrain in his works again and again, you know, in his reading of Anti-Oedipus, for example. But you see it in all of his books where it's this hammering against sort of the aestheticization of not the aestheticization, but the the becoming ascetic of especially of American politics. But we see it elsewhere too. And it's and it's kind of just this default mode. I don't share the same metaphysics with um, Baudrillard who will, you know, talk about simulacrum in a way of like it's inferior or shallow. Deleuze, for instance, in Logic of Sense, you know, he has this whole great piece on um, simulacrum because, you know, for him, he doesn't have this sort of like a Hegelian split either between appearance and essence. But at the same time, it's just like, image or identity is the secondary effect. It's really not really what's going on. And so then what you have to do is actually, I think, go back to aesthetics itself, which, you know, as the Greek term goes back to a sense of senses. Yeah. About the the sense and a sense reaction. And there's actually really great work on this, you know, um, the history of the politics of aesthetics, 19th century and early 20th century, we're still in a notion of shock right? Maybe that's because of industrialization and new technology mm-hmm. or something, but you know, it's about shocking and then anesthetizing. And that's also what Deleuze says in cinema one is what classical cinema is as well, to shock the masses into action, you know, an yeah. Eisenstein or someone like that. And then he says, after World War II, people were shell-shocked that too yeah. much, the, they're yeah. shocked out. The shock just doesn't work in the same way anymore. And so then he's really interested in the future. So it moves from the sort of like shocking people into action, which, you know, still kind of exists in our fear-based politics and everything, but it just becomes so reactionary at a certain point. Right. Um, and that instead there's this idea of a subversive image tied to movement, which I think mm. is really like the ground underneath the image or something. And this is where I really like the work of uh, Francois Zor- Zorich Biv, sorry. Zorbich Vili. Yes, there we go. <laughs> um, who interprets Deleuze as a political thinker of the event. And so there are people who have a sort of process Deleuze, which I think gets back into this sort of parliamentary reformism. But I think the Deleuze of uh, the event is about rupture and breakage, and it's about non-appearance. And so one way in which Zora Bitchvili defines the event is when a moment no longer correspond, the image of a present no longer corresponds with itself which is to say that there's a future that has come into the present that undermines and disrupts what we took to be the present. And so this is the sort of like, not only an open-ended future of difference, but it's also, you know, the sort of differential ontology of Deleuze or the differential method of of, uh, Deleuze, but also one of this disruption of the present. And so that means that we're always undoing the images of what we consider to be real, to be given, to be possible, all these other things. And this, this is a great way to, to sort of get deeper into your new work and this notion of a resistance to the present, which comes, mm. comes out as another refrain, another thread throughout the book. Because for Deleuze, you know, creating is this act of resistance. And you kind of, I think, I'm not sure if you use this term, but I, I, I remember it. And so maybe I'm misremembering, but this notion of sort of a, 
conflict with presentism. Do you, mm. do you use that phrase presentism or that, that word, or did, am I just making that up? I'm trying to think oh, about, that's a great question. I'm trying to think about this refrain of sort of, uh, I'm not sure if it's the metropolis and the sort of the cybernetic connectivity that makes that like has this, what's this monopoly on the present. And so part of escaping intensively, or, you know, you, you call it subtractive communism is sort of evading that, that means of, of capture by, by way of the present and, and sort of the, you know, this, this is the only possible world and all of this other stuff. But I guess, you know, you can answer the, that about the, the president, that thread, but also I do want to ask about this notion of subtractive communism and maybe elaborate a little bit for our listeners what that, that entails for you. Let's start with the perpetual present. So mm-hmm. this is a term I think I initially got from Guy Debord. Okay. It has a much larger role in very early draft of the book. I actually split off my dissertation into two or three parts. And so this is just one part of what the dissertation once was. Gotcha. And so it, it played a much bigger role in the other piece. So it's this sort of term that haunts everything that I write because I've never really published the significant work in which I uh, really work out the concept. It first came from this intuition that I think many people share, that under what most people call neoliberalism, there's this ideology or this discourse of there is no outside or there's Mm -hmm. no alternative, and that no matter how much things change, they always stay the same. This is also like something that structuralism itself, structural Marxism tried to address. I think there's a really beautiful, elegant formulation in the late Althusser on this too, Mm -hmm. where you know there's this big debate over like, do we have a new or a different capitalism? Is it all capitalism? You know, I'm not super invested in the Marxology of it. I'm interested in the philosophical problem that it might pose, which is, you know, if we're to defeat capitalism, we need to defeat all of it, not just a certain variant of it, not just casino capitalism or corporate capitalism or monopoly Vol- capitalism or whatever. vulture capitalism, which was a phrase yeah. for for an election cycle. Yeah, uh, I mean, those are those are just like. They're all variants those are terms on the same. For politicians. Yeah, yes, those are terms but... for politicians. Yeah, like who cares? And so for the structural Marxists, it's that there are certain determinate conditions that make capitalism what it is, but the actual elements or substance that need to be expressed in order to do it can in fact be non-coincidental and have their own histories and be replaced all the time like a sort of form of you know musical chairs, as long as mm-hmm. there's still enough sort of being occupied. So I'm like, well, what does this mean for time? What does this right. mean for time? You know, because like for a certain Deleuzian who's like really interested in Bergson, who's like read a little too much Lucretius or something like everything's <laughs> always changing all the time. Right. But if like that's the case, how could we have persistent, durable systems of oppression like capitalism, patriarchy, heteronormativity or anti-black violence? You know, like how and why do these things persist right. if it's always changing? And so one way that I get to that is just saying we live in a permanent present. And, you know, Guy Debord came up with this, this term for it. He's like a Lukacian Hegelian. So obviously he has a very different way of getting to it. So I had right, to come up right. with my own definition, yeah. you know, in order to keep philosophical consistency. And so for me, I get to it in part through the figure of the metropolis, because I was very persuaded by Hartenegree and then Tikkun's use of empire as a term. It's been kind of washed away from this book because I uh, didn't want to do all the work to establish it, but you know, it shows up in a few places. Yes, um, it does. But as I was doing that work, I was like, okay, so if we have empire, which Hart and Negri, for instance, not that they have the, the monopoly on it, but like they say that it has a formal, legal, 
definition in terms of a sort of constitutionalism, like a liberal constitutionalism, then it's also materially expressed through global capitalism. Like what is the metropolis, which is a term that that Hart used and then Negri uses sometimes, but they don't really elaborate too much. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, metropolis is actually the material working out of the formal elements of empire. And so it's like the lived existence of empire. And once again, it's not a term that I use that much, but it has this really nice convergence with um, mid-century decolonial and anti-colonial and anti-imperialist politics in which they're trying to like fight against the metropole, but they're also doing it like the Red Army faction as urban guerrillas in and against Germany. So they're trying to complicate it. So for me, metropolis doesn't have to be just this very old basic colonial relation. It's the lived existence within empire whose biopolitical fabric has covered the whole globe basically or, right. or next to it. And so within that, you know, as empire prevails, as we all live in the in the metropolis, we have this feeling of perpetual present. We feel like we don't know what the alternative is. We don't know what comes next or how to get out of it. The solutions that we're given seem really silly or paltry, such as like state socialism or even market socialism, if you go ask the Japan, Jacobin crowd, which doesn't get you out of empire or the metropolis. It's a right. different way of managing it. You know, mm -hmm. Negri would say this. He's just like state socialism is just another variant of capitalism. So, you know, within that, it's this like felt experience where we're just we're trapped. Nothing's going to shift. Nothing's going to change. And so then within it, I see all of the political figures in the book as people who refuse it. They say no. They're just like, uh-uh. We understand that we have this feeling of the perpetual present, but it's we're not going to let it exist. We're gonna we're gonna fight for something else. So maybe that's how we get to subtractive communism. I mean, this is a very different story. I get to subtractive communism through a close reading of the rhizome plateau. Because, so you know, transcendence from the multiplicity. Yeah, which, you know, interestingly enough, bad you will make into a philosophical paradigm too. He's always the minus yep. one guy, but, yep. you know, yep. there's one reason reading of rhizome, which is maybe the easy or the popular reading, and maybe even one that Deleuze initially had himself, where it's just like, Additional. You're always adding on. You right. know, the rhizome can always grow. It's going in a new direction. It's taking these transversal lines or something. But then as I was really doing a close reading of how DNG wanted to distinguish this from other approaches, of course, they distinguish it from the uh, the you know arboreal tree, you know, which is a unity and a one. There's also a second figure in there, which people don't always catch, which is the sort of like false decentralized network. Yeah. I think they call that a root system. The root radical, yeah. And then finally, there's the real rhizome, which can be disconnected and it's more than just decentralized. It's always like breaking off from what it previously was and starting new things. And so they have this line where they say N minus one. I'm like, ooh, ooh, it's not just the N plus one. You're not just adding things. It's the N minus one. And that's the thing that's really been missed. It requires this sort of subtractive operation. Of mm -hmm. course, there's like the grand sense of it's like minus one of minus the arborescent, but then they also like systems and complexity theory. So it could be thinking, let's say that a system is defined by N dimensions, you know? So what if we take those N dimensions and take one away? What if you take away one of those determinants that's necessary for the system to maintain its own coherence or even consistency, then suddenly the system breaks and it has to morph into something else. 
And then there's also just the subtractive in general, which is the non-participation, the refusal, the creation of something else, or even just the um, complete resistance. Not to put up a different candidate for office, but like it happens in a lot of places, like rioting against compulsory voting and saying, we won't participate. You cannot call this a mandate. There is no consent to rule because there's not participation. And so you know, making politics collapse as we know it. And then of course the share that as a shared project is the communist element of it. One image that we get from this is Tikkun's imaginary party, which is funny. I mean, I give a chapter where I sort of explain this, where there were some blogs yes. that were collating news stories that people had just you know, consider like petty criminal behavior, or maybe even like kids who like and these are from like local or regional newspapers where like someone broke into a construction site, drove the tractors around, threw the keys away, or even broke the tractors. And, you know, oh my God, isn't this terrible? It did dollars <laughs> worth of damage. And then you just want, read these blogs and it's just like, it posts like 10 stories like this every day. You know, people randomly attack cop car, break its windows, run away, don't get arrested. And that is the imaginary party or party for Tikkun because they say formal political parties are so invested in power these days. They're just these huge money machines and huge dynasties that they don't really make politics as we know it. They just sort of police the population and they engage in management. Politics happens when the unexpected interrupts business as usual and suddenly everyone has to react to it. And this is very kind of Ranciarian, I guess, but in a different sort of way. And so they say every society has this, what tries to be sort of ignored or written off as background noise or just criminal or something. But as it cranks up or it can't be effectively managed, this is what interrupts business as usual, what gets taken as politics. And in fact, is usually an expression or a characteristic of social discontent, just as much as peasants rising up with their pitchforks against the feudal lord was 700 years ago. And so in that same way, all those people make up a party, but you know, in that funny like Marx Brothers way of which they'd never admit membership in which no one can actually be a member, right? And so it's that imaginary party that makes a lot of the fabric of refusal and resistance today. And if you completely change your perspective and start looking at it, there's a very different way of operating and organizing and being within it. It doesn't mean like giving them representation. It's not about making them into a political party or whatever. It means a reimagination of kind of what the gorilla was, which was, you know, where you swim in the water of the peasants or the people, right? And this is not a peasant or a people, it's an imaginary party, but it's a mm -hmm. very different model of politics. I don't know if it's super popular right now, but I mean, it's the thing that, that excites me and I see happening more and more, especially as government continues to break down. It's interesting or coincidental that you mentioned reading Lucretius too much or in motion because we have, I'm sure you're familiar with Thomas Nail. We'll be speaking with him next week ironically. <laughs> oh, I like him. Yeah. I mean, I guess he's the person who takes the other direction, right? Right. <laughs> and and so he creates a completely different model that's the marks in motion, that's the it's all movement. You know, I have enough of a like a a commitment to a certain political version of marxism that I always wonder what happens if you get rid of key political propositions within marxism such as the labor theory of value. Mm -hmm. I take the labor theory of value not as a descriptive statement 
or as just like a basic element of political economy, but as a political proposition, which is to say all value is produced by labor. And in fact, there's like union guys will get this embroidered on the back of their jackets and stuff because it's to say bosses don't do fucking work. Mm -hmm. You know, mold spores don't do fucking work. The only origin of value is by labor itself, labor power, which is then expropriated and exploited Mm -hmm. by the capitalist in terms of profit. And so that is also then the political lever through which Marxists find themselves. And so if we muddy too much that definition of labor, which I admit, you know, it's anthropocentric, I think the political paradigm gets a little confusing. So that's, and I don't mean to be overly critical to my new materialist compatriots or people who believe in a movement in motion and value coming from outside human sources or all these other things, but I'm just like, what happens to the political proposition? Like, what is your key political proposition once you talk about complex assemblages in which everyone's contributing labor and all that kind of stuff? And this is how I, there's some challenges that happen within Deleuzean and Deleuze Guattarian thought with this too. But I think Maurizio Lazzarato's Science and Machines is like absolutely essential entry in this because it's not the machines produce value. It's that we live in a new mega machine Mm -hmm. that is exploiting us. And that, you know, they say machinic enslavement. Once again, I don't want this to be confused with actual like chattel slavery of the triangle slave trade and the Black Atlantic and that sort of thing. But that we now live in an era in which humans maybe are reduced in how they're contributing the machine. But I think that, you know, it's not that we need to give AI human rights and we need to respect their consciousness or all these other things that often come off in sci-fi novels or things like, no, you know, I I, I think that's politically regressive. It's uh, mm-hmm. machines are introduced by capitalists in order to expropriate more value. And so I'm all about the Luddites and the machine breakers and the people who really target the machines as a way of maintaining a political program. And in fact, I I recently came out with a film that followed a machine breaker group in Southern France that called themselves Clodo. The film's called Machines in Flames. Um, (laughs) You you can find out more, machinesinflames.com to see a trailer of the film and archival stuff. And they just like, they bombed capitalists and military firms. No one was hurt in the process. No one was ever captured. And they didn't have this sort of anti-imperialist analysis, but it was There were anti-imperialist groups at the time, like uh, Red Brigades were bombing computer sites as well, because it was a time where computers were these large, expensive objects, and it was very clear what they were doing. They're being used for logistics and profile management. They're used to track people. They're used extensively by police at the time who adopted them. And so it's just like, yeah, machines need to be sort of blown up. And so I'm developing a bit of more ambiguous relationship with the sort of like machine ontology of DNG2. But, you know, hopefully we can all still sort of agree at the end. This is a a statement that they make very clearly in Anti-Oedipus, right? That it's with capitalism proper. They kind of reversed it, right? Where you would think it's the all the contingencies made up and it's machines that help to propel capitalism. But for them, it's the other way around, right? Machines properly understood are sort of a an effect of capital and capitalism, the full body of capital. But um, so I mean, I think that that even if they may not themselves produce a, a a Ludditism. There is there are some uh, strands there in capitalism schizophrenia that that resonate. Absolutely. And it, you know, then we get these sort of it's maybe an ontological proposition or something too. It's just like we're living in a world of machines now. 
And so it's the right epistemology to be able to talk about like what exists and how we should interact with things. Yes, we're, it's a machine world. And if that's true, then that's absolutely the case. Like we're talking to each other through all kinds of mediations of machines right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I have some friends in uh, Poland who are setting up a feminist chat bot to help Ukrainian women seek abortion and other women's health services. Wow. And it's like, they're going to be facilitated and connected to people through a series of instructions put in a machine. And I'm not against that. You know, mm-hmm. but it's a tactical thing. In general, yeah. I also really support people who want to resist the incursion of machines in other social processes that totally exploit people in new, inconceivable ways, like the shift from, you know, I was talking to some students about control societies a couple of days ago. There's this between being a bus driver and the way buses operate or a train or, or a subway or something and taxis, which is already the sort of first formal subsumption and reorganization of labor. So it's labor. So it's a real subsumption as well. And then Uber in which people don't even see themselves as employees. Like how would you even unionize because people aren't seeing each other. They're not talking about their family and their kids here in California. We had a ballot proposition in which contract laborers like that were given the option to get formal labor protections as if it was a real job and it was voted down. And so that's the world we live in. These machines are completely reconfiguring our sense of self, social interaction, all forms of society or the socius as we know it. Yeah. And they, they talk about, they say some things about like the subject as just an effect and, and, and adjacent to the, the machines, the desiring machines. And they also talk about, I believe very early on in the first chapter, if not a little bit later, sort of man as like the custodian of the machines of the universe. So there is Obviously, they were ahead of their time, but it's there is this, uh, it's becoming more and more imperative to deal with that reality. And, and it's an and, anti-humanism yeah. too, right? Because if you just think of like what's going on in radical militant politics at the time when they're writing, there's still a lot of these Marxist humanist appeals to humanity. Yeah. And it can have this very nostalgic impulse for recovering labor from the alienating life of machines and that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. So that's not their critique. They're not doing the moral critique of machines. Right. And in fact, you know, there's some people who take the techno side of D&G in a sort of like neutral way. I'm not as cool about that. Like, I don't think that they would want us to live in a technocratic universe in which we just have more elaborate machines organize things. Right. I mean, there is cool stuff like Ursula Le Guin's book, The Dispossessed, that imagines like food or basic logistical care is taken over by just like a big computational system. But I don't, I think they're ambiguous on that. And they're not huge celebrants. And I think on the other hand, I mean, not that I need to name him. Maybe I, he, he's the one who will, who will not be named. There are ways in which like machines are also this like encounter with the horror of the alien or of mm-hmm. like the other that could be bad, could be good, but deserves consideration as well. So it's not simply this like technical tool that humans put into existence to help ourselves. It's this totally new bizarre thing that as long as it's driven by capital, will just like totally reconfigure the metaphysics of the earth or the universe as we know it in the interest of uh, irrigated capitalist channels of power. I've been thinking about this I mean, this is kind of banal, my example, but I think it goes to something larger is this, you know, just 
trying to reset a password or something that simple, right? Is especially with two factor authentication, et cetera, it becomes this control, like <laughs> this bizarre, like draconian control methodology, even though that's obviously banal, right? But I don't know. I think there is something very, I guess, alarming about how that can, you can sort of see the logic of this becoming a greater, more integrated as technology and machine learning and AI systems begin to proliferate and evolve into something more complex. You know, even things like blockchain, like I just have this notion of blockchain is going to be these smart contract things will be this ultimate form of control where there's no, there's not even an estate, there's not even a political establishment that you can pretend to appeal to. It's just this straight machinic algorithmic process that totally eliminates the human elements I mean, that's kind of a terrifying future, I think. Yeah, this is why we need communism. I mean, like communism or, or capital is not the only form of oppression, dominance, and power these days. We certainly need to talk about things like race and gender and ability. But like the unique thing about capitalism is that it turns everything into property. And so you're right. All crypto is, is a ramping up of property relations. And this is why I'm deeply suspicious of certain forms of socialism or even people who want to like appropriate Bitcoin for socialism or something like that. It's like, no, minimal condition for communism is to do away with property relations. And so if you're not doing away with property, it's not communism in any categorical definition way. And that if you do do away with property, if you eliminate the property relation and put something else in its place, totally cool if it needs to be like technically managed through infrastructural systems or something like that. Like I'm I'm fine with that. You know, I'm not anti-machine in that way, but that, mm -hmm. you know, the the extent to which, like you're saying, we get identified, we get tracked, we get sorted in order for there to be profiles in which our properties sort of stick to us in this sort of way. Right. And then we get statistically managed in these very complicated ways. Wendy Chun has a new book on this that's called Discriminating Data, in which she's just looking at all the statistical develops of statistics over the last sort of hundred years or so to show you know, as we're using more machine learning, which is ultimately just a, a form of statistics, that there are forms of discrimination that come that are unique from it. And, and she says, she calls it homophily, the way in which like things are yeah. grouped together, like in a neighborhood. And so she says, actually, like the forms of housing discrimination that we had during redlining is exactly the forms of discrimination and exclusion that we'll have under statistic-based models if we're not really smart about preventing them from coming into place. And so I think that's that's our future. But you know, of course, statistics, which is literally state mathematics, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's yeah. its name. That's why it was invented. It's about accumulating facts about the state in order for it to be more efficiently managed. Means that, like, if we want an alternative approach, it's not going to be the road of royal science. Yeah. It has to be a minor science. It has to be subtraction. It has to be transversal. It needs to be, you know, really taking things in creative, experimental new directions. This is at least one area where we can salvage Lucretius just a little bit with the birth of physics and the hydraulic, you know, given the hydraulic model of, of a type of minor science that they, they talk about. But that's an excursus we can leave for another time. I do like a lot of where we're going with this. And, you know, it does tie back into the, as I said earlier, this, when you kind of point out in the introduction, even if they only kind of, even in the span of two pages, they elaborate this becoming imperceptible and it kind of helps to set up some of the, what I call the conceptual persona, personae of your book, obviously that 
I don't want to reduce it to those, but there are these uh, conceptual personae, obviously the gorilla, which, you know, we've talked a little bit about and gives the name to your book, but there's also what the, the killjoy, the, uh, yeah, the troublemaker, you, you pit the cyborg feminist against the, uh, the, what the, the eco goddess, the eco goddess. Yeah. I and, mean, Haraway did that for me, but yeah. Well, I, and to speak about ableism, those who weaponize their illness, you know, you draw on that, you draw on this notion of the fugitive and the maroon. I, I mentioned this notion of um, intensive escape because you make it very clear as Deleuze himself would when he talks about voyage or travel, right? It, it is this thing that can happen in place and it is intensive, you know, above all this notion of self-abolition, which you yourself ascribe to. And I wanted to maybe talk to you, maybe at least you can talk about the other figures as well, but but I wanted to link this notion of self-abolition to sort of what we've been talking about in light of machines, communism, subtractive communism. I mean, are we is this a part of that that death of the self with that capital S that Deleuze heralds? You know, is this is this connected to some I guess how does that connect? How I, you don't always use that first person voice but towards the end of the book you do start to go into that first person voice and one of the things that struck me was this notion of self-abolition i wanted maybe you to speak on that a little bit yeah so i think the the political sign that i operate under the most these days might actually be abolition or abolitionist just because i think it gathers together the right group of people mm-hmm. i'm certainly not swearing off the anarchist or the communist these other elements but i think that abolition is really going through an important moment right now and i have been working against prisons and policing for a very long time and so it's something that sort of speaks very dearly to me i bring up self abolition in the context of the black studies section yes which is on fugitivity so it's important to sort of note how that exists because, you know, there's this fairly popular argument right now that I've always sort of believed in, which is that what separates, let's say, racism, which is this sort of like modern scientific category invented by Europeans in order to justify their colonial enterprise from anti-blackness, is that anti-blackness is about exclusion from a category of the all, which is usually the human. And that it persists in a lot of places. Now, that, that's usually posed in this sort of like Derridian faction fashion, but we'll put that aside for now. And that there's this question of like how one responds to anti-Blackness as a systemic form of domination. And so one of them is to increase the frame. And that's like the civil rights movement, for example. And I don't want to be overly critical of this because it's really important. I think that there's a important Black feminist critique that says, oh, everyone's willing to get rid of the human just as the time in which former colonial and Black subjects are finally getting their rights. Interesting. And it's like, isn't that convenient, right? That Mm -hmm. people don't want rights anymore right when specific groups start getting them. Okay. So, you know, I want to be sensitive to that. But I think that the other response, the one that's coming through Black studies, there's a feminist version of this, and there's a paradigmatic one that comes through communism about the proletariat. It's like, for instance, in the Marxist one, the proletariat is not the class that deserves all of the fruits of labor and that we should have like an aristocracy of labor or something, you know, which we see in something like the anthropology of the Soviet Union or other socialist states in which, you know, they create these, these great murals and mosaics and hymns and stories to the labor. Like that's not the point. Actually, the proletariat is the party of its own self-abolition. Mm-hmm. 
And so it is generally this sort of dialectical argument in which the subject most posed as dangerous and a threat to the system that will subvert and undermine it is, you know, at least in capitalism proletariat, in anti-blackness, it is, you know, the black subject or the non-subject object or the para-ontology of blackness. You know, there are other ways in which people do this. And so for me, that's what I'm mining here as well. So there's no redemptive angle. It's not about saying that there's been an excluded that needs now to be included. Mm-hmm. It takes the outside or its marginality and it weaponizes it. And it says that the point is not to, you know, get entered in the, like, here, here's an example of how it happens in like very standard politics. Like if you look at decolonization and then inclusion within development, global development paradigm, it's historically known that every time a new nation wins independence and, the, and then like makes itself into the global order, it always gets put at a bottom rung. And so if it then tries to work its way up, it's almost impossible because it's always going to be in this dependent relationship with its former colonial power. So even if they win political independence, they're economically perhaps even more dependent than they were before. Interesting. Yeah. This is very similar to electoral politics or pressure politics or other things as well. And so these are all figures who use their sort of marginality and their outsideness as their greatest asset or their greatest resource or tool. And this can get romanticized, of course, as the uh-huh. way in which drug culture got romanticized uh-huh. or, you know, people who relish in their marginality in a way that really makes it miserable for others or makes work for others. But I think that this is something that's coming very clearly out of Black studies right now and that I think is this amazing contribution and that if people sleep on it, they're going to they're gonna lose it. Though, of course, someone like Frank Wilderson, who, who's working in this, also says that like, it drives him insane. The fact that he's willing to acknowledge that he feels that he lives a non-existence. He's like, it's not, it's not possible <laughs> to live your marginality and to really come to try and recognize the, the fact of your marginality or your outsideness or your, your, your lack of a being or not being counted as human. Like it's not a position of like safety or of comfort. And in fact, it drives many people mad, mm-hmm. like literally mad. And so it's difficult, but I think that that's a sort of a model of revolution that maybe we've always known, but that we've forgotten or, or is less popular or something. This kind of reminds me a little bit of an example of, you know, we discussed, um, I think it was in Denver where disability activists, they got under the tires of buses, et cetera. But the really great part was of the story was that the police vans, et cetera, like whenever they were coming to, you know, take away these activists, there were no ramps to get the no wheelchair ramps on the police buses they were not accessible <laughs> yes yes exactly right i mean say what you will about the ada but the capital crawl i think is a really big image of this too yeah where it's like people who have mobility troubles or challenges got rid of their prostheses and their other devices that assist them mm-hmm. and literally crawled up the steps and it was just immediately apparent to people that inability of the institution to accommodate them. So of course that it was a pressure or demand for more accommodation. And so what you're looking at is the radicalization of it, where it's turned into a weapon and it's Mm -hmm. saying, you're going to have a really difficult time moving me. (laughs) So I'm going to like lodge myself under your wheels. I'm going to be there. And then you'll even try and cart me away and it's not going to happen. So, I mean, that's it. That's strategy at at its finest. And I probably Mm -hmm. do it with a much less deft hand in my book, but I was, I was just looking for people who do that, who 
you know, with the Social Patients Collective in Heidelberg, Germany, and they only exist for a couple of years, but, you know, they have this really, maybe it's in the translation, but maybe it's just in the slogan itself, you know, from the German. They're like, if capitalism or life or whoever, you know, they give you a kidney stone, then throw it through their window. That's great. Yeah. This is the, the sections where you're talking about weaponizing your illness. And I assume that that's the group that you're mentioning. What was the group again? I'm, I'm sorry. Socialist Patients Collective. I assume that that's part, that was part of their, if not a slogan, that was, that was sort of came out of that, that group. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a dialectical logic. So they're like, capitalism made us bad workers. Like we're incapable of working. It made us ill. And they're like, that is not something to mourn. That's something to celebrate. We are the grave diggers of capitalism because we are these unproductive subjects. And mm-hmm. so the point is not to make us productive again. To make us whole as if, as if we've lost something, it's to ramp up our unproductivity and use it antagonistically as many points as possible against the system that created it. Yeah. It's like, mm, maybe that's a little too dialectical. Maybe that's too hopeful in how it works, but like, what, a, what a brilliant, elegant logic. But each and every one of us, you know, I mean, we, we can talk about, you know, transsectionality and connecting up with all the different minoritarian groups, right? And But each of us at any moment virtually can become disabled, can become differently abled, I'm, you know, can, can take on that, that unproductivity can, can embody each and every one of us at virtually any moment. COVID, in, I think in particular, yeah. brings us in a very sharp relief. Yeah. I had a, a friend of coworkers, very sweet woman. She's been struggling with this and I just, my heart goes out to her, but you know, it's a very real thing. This long COVID. I don't know if you, either of you, have read these threads on Twitter, but yeah, it's. I think it's sort of being swept under the rug, even just be, beyond like the deaths and so forth. It's like we still don't know how how yeah we how have no widespread clue. how how uh, if there is recovery at the end or if this is something right. that yeah, exactly permanently debilitating or what have you. Right. Yeah. And so I have a I have a version of this. I was teaching a you know, a first year level radical politics class. And we're doing a week on um, sex workers and sex work. It's like sex workers have usually been some of the first adopters of technology and developed the most advanced security protocols on how to keep themselves and each other safe. And so as a sort of design paradigm, what is good for sex workers is generally good for everyone else. And so I would sort of also modify this about things like COVID or ability Mm -hmm. or universal design. And it's to say, when it comes to something like work, it's not that work should benefit the people who are the most productive or the most capable. We need to be designing or thinking about care or even making our politics around people who are suffering from something like long COVID and using them as like a paradigm. Capitalism, like in the workplace, pits us against each other. And yeah. what does it look like when we actually, you know, hold each other up and, you know, not try and come up with universal solutions, but like suddenly find something where someone else in their situation, you know, is a model for us where they actually are radical in a way that we wouldn't have thought. And I think that just means getting rid of the sort of like baseline liberalism where when someone's going through something or they're, they're having a challenge, it's like, oh, pity them oh, you know, we need to make them whole immediately, return them to the normalized subject. Right. That's right. a very good point. Obviously resonates with the Foucauldian in you, but also the, the <laughs> Nietzschean in you to, uh, to resist this movement of pity and, and morality and, and, and all of this. Uh, Coop, did you have something else? I didn't mean to cut you off. It just came to mind because this was someone who has uh, 
very kind of cool. There's a group here in Austin that it's called like mobile fish and loaves and they kind of have a food sort of outreach, you know, ministry, I guess you would, might even consider it. And they deliver food to people who have difficulty accessing it and whatnot, but they also have this property that they purchased and it's a bunch of tiny homes. And it's actually this kind of community for people that are unhoused or what have you, they can come there and sort of be part of this community. They'll sort of teach you some artisanal skills. And, you know, it's, it's not just, Hey, here's, here's a house. Here's, here's some money. Good luck. It's like kind of understanding, you know, this has to be situated in a community. You, there has to be support. You know, you can't just throw people onto the, the mercy of this sort of free market and expect them to be able to negotiate it you know, without this larger community at hand and people with their other experiences. I mean, it's a great place. Yeah. So she was working out there. It reminds me a little bit of um, how I described labor to people sometimes. Cause like sometimes, you know, the, you know, the clinic that Guattari, you know, lived most of his life at, it could just be this like, oh, he was at a clinic. And I think that's how people talked about it for a little while until more of these documents sort of circulated and people had a clear sense or people even traveled and went there. I mean, I think the first real sense of it I got was actually from a documentary in which a traveling theater troupe came in and put on King Lear. They incorporated a number of people who lived there. Yes. They were like nonverbal or even like were like catatonic. And they had, they cast King Lear as this really big guy with a huge beard who was nonverbal and just kind of wandered around the whole time. What better staging of King Lear than that, right? Yeah. And then yeah. like one of the guys, when he was interviewed after the play was like, look, we don't want to be back in your society. This is, this is where I belong. Like there are different rules here and this is where I thrive. And I think that that's really what makes Labor interesting is they're like, they carved out this place near Paris in which they could create different rules where they could just experiment and create ways of life in which people could thrive, in which they couldn't in other places. And you know, I'm not a huge like solutionist commune person, but I love when other people are and people do really great stuff. There's something going on in Atlanta right now, right now about this too. Some tikkunas have done um, an Atlanta forest occupation and in a similar model of kind of the Zod in France. And my heart is with them, even if I'm not even with them in, in physical presence. This kind of goes to this, I guess, opposition to the recogn- the uh, the politics of a mere recognition. And then I think that really builds towards imperceptibility as well, and which we have talked about a little bit, but I don't know if you want to perhaps go into how becoming imperceptible is integrated into this kind of guerrilla inspired program or not even a program. I know that's being too, too broad, yeah. but. So I quickly make reference in the introduction to Tikkun's reading of the autonomous era of politics in Italy, which I think many people will be familiar with at this point. But Tikkun's reading is not that, you know, they're on the verge of a revolution or that they innovated Marxist theory or something like that. It's that they liked how politics became a question of a way of life and that it experimented in a whole bunch of dimensions that had not been sort of thought of as political, excuse me, political previously. So how people live together with things like squats, with free radio stations and how people make and disseminate music or other forms of culture, with the women's movement and the way in which women have decided new ways of living and being together and taking to the streets. And they thought that it was important as a subtraction, right? Because it's in opposition to the communist party at the time, which had its own very strong workerist agenda. And it maintained a form of antagonism while doing it as well. If it was simply like, oh, we're going to go do a DIY thing, it wouldn't have been nearly as interesting to them. And I think that's 
something that I try and maintain with this project as well. Like it's not just an anarchist, let's build another community in the woods. It has to understand that those communities or projects are going to be antagonistic with its wider context and to predict that and build power and to really defend itself and to know that there will be conflicts that emerge and not shy away from them, not try and just moderate yourself or plug back into the system in this very friendly, amicable sort of way. And so, you know, I think sometimes that means not being legible to the powers that be so you can get more room to maneuver and that you can have more autonomy, but it also is imperceptible in order to make strikes against it more effective. If you read, uh, I don't know if you all have ever read police stuff, like police are so funny. They're really paranoid and they have a very little imagination. So there's a real strong police logic to this uh, Antifa obsession, right? And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, there are dr- buses of Antifa driving around everywhere. Or, you know, there's a police logic behind the anti-CRT thing where they're like, our children are being do- indoctrinated in race ideology, right? And they immediately try and find an agenda and they then attach it to George Soros and the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you're imperceptible and you don't fit into that electoral grid, then they'll have their wide conspiracies and they'll try and clamp down on or whatever, but it won't work because you're just in such a different position and working in such a different way that they'll never, they'll miscalculate at every step. I mean, it'll still be dangerous from people. People are still going to get arrested and locked up and skewered over the news. People are going to lose jobs, like all of the terrible things that happen due to repression. Repression will still occur. But the more imperceptible you are, the more you can have tactical and strategic strikes that don't make sense to your enemy. And so you're actually going to be able to make more and more progress against them. I think, I don't know, it's a, it's a theoretical principle. It, how it actually works out is, is case by case, I suppose. This is one of the things that, that came out clearly when you were discussing like the glitch and the system, I use it broadly, trying to automate and standardize, over-standardize in order to eliminate the glitches and how that actually kind of accelerates that its own weaknesses. In just your example of like attaching, you know, let's just say if Antifa represents an N minus one, it's like, well, we got to add back the one, like the boogeyman of George Soros or the Democratic Party or, or some sort of majoritarian interest that would stand in for that one dimension to make it molar or, you know, choose your conceptual framework for it. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Love this observation, which is that so many conservatives or even people on the center of the left who mm-hmm. can't think without the one. Right. And so when you operate in an N minus one fashion, they're just going to obsessively try and return the one. Yeah. They're going to try and see what party you're a part of. Who's your interest? What are you trying to get out of this? And yep. if you don't exist in their sort of grid of intelligibility, you might as well not exist to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the statistical molar, the royal science aspect that you were discussing. And it, so it's it's trying to reincorporate back into the status model, back into the, the molar, uh, that representative statistical model, because that's part of where their, their power lies. And that's also just a you know, you, you allude to this too in certain aspects. This part of the becoming imperceptible too is is linked to Foucault and his wariness about not to, I know it's been beaten to death, you know, knowledge, power, but there is this, there is this uh this real effect of you know becoming represented, taking on identity, stepping out into the light of knowledge. There is a, you know, you put a target on your back. 
Absolutely. Which is why Foucault was so ambivalent about disclosure. I mean, I guess the thing that we haven't talked about here yet so far, because we've definitely done the anarchism and the Marxism, we've done a little bit in the sort of black studies, though. I mean, there's more there, but we haven't talked about the queerness, which is really the center center chapter. And, you know, it's so funny. Like I say this in one of the early chapters on it. It's just like, everyone talks about biopower and Foucault, but they don't talk about sex. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, like that's sex is like where biopower comes from. And if you forget the sex, then like you're missing the boat. And it's like Foucault was a gay man who said he wasn't gay. And it wasn't just because he was in the closet or that he was like trying to hide something. It's that his way of life was not about having an identity that you profess and you wear on your sleeve. And he thinks that that was how he moved through the world. Anyway, there's this really great book on this as well. That's called The Opacity of the Closet. Is that it? It goes through Foucault, Roland Barthes, and who's the third figure? Jean Genet. Okay. Yeah. All three figures who didn't sort of do this very identitarian approach to their gayness. And it's like, what makes them so brilliant and interesting? Maybe another figure I'll add on to this because of Tim Stutkin's really great book, In a Queer Time and Place, is Sun Ra. Sun Ra was not straight by the sort of medical definition of men who love men or men who have sex with men, I think he would be considered one of those. But he was just like, I'm an alien. You know, he's like, I'm a Sun Ra. And that it's those forms of, I guess what, you know, someone after Jose Munoz drawing from Peixot would say like, disidentification opens up this ground or this territory. No, I'm not working. You know, disidentification, I think, is still too sort of Lacanian in its approach. So I'm not working with disidentification. I'm I'm looking at opacity and stealthiness. Jason Stanley has a new book on trans stealthiness as well, sort of anti-surveillance approach from a trans perspective. And I think it's really important. I I also taught a uh, feminist surveillance studies class in the fall. And it was interesting because we were like, we're not going to make this class about boys and their toys. We're going to make this, you know, on prism and, you know, surveillance systems, that sort of thing. We're going to talk about the people who are targeted by surveillance. Mm -hmm. And when you actually broach the topic through that, you know, you're not going to get so much through Wired Magazine, but suddenly you start talking about people like sex workers who've created really great anti-surveillance technologies for themselves. They've created different modes of life that are resistant to it. You know, you read Simone Brown's Dark Matters and you understand all of these aspects of Black life that you wouldn't otherwise understand. And so I really like this infopolitics example that Robin Kelly uses, where he's like, well, what about Black labor organizing before the end of slavery, which is, you know, manumission? And he's like, well, they're not going to form unions. Because unions require legal recognition as subjects under the law. And so then he's like, well, let's go back through the archive and look at all these ways in which there's like unintelligible forms of struggle that anyone with a single brain cell or two brain cells to rub together will see that are about labor resistance rather than like black stupidity. And so it's like, you know, this woman who was complaining about her slave always burning her dresses when they were being ironed and washed, you know, or about how people always slowed down when they started singing songs. And it's like, well, actually that was in order to change the rate at which people were doing part of the tobacco picking and processing in order to make sure that, you know, everyone was able to do it at the right pace and not get in trouble. And so, you know, that unintelligibility or indiscernibility is Mm -hmm. super crucial. And I think it requires a few moves to even start looking at it. And, you know, the policymakers of this world might want you to come up with a blueprint and a document and how to make it more efficient or something, but that's just like not what we're going to get from this book. Sorry, that was a bit of a, you know, no, no soapbox for that one. But. No, that, that I mean, 
there's there's a lot to react to and i think that you know that's obviously one of the things that maybe wasn't anticipated when you taught that class last fall is this i mean one of the horrors talking about surveillance is uh this tracking of of women's periods right that's kind of a horror that that i was just uh, finding out about. And, and so with, with the paranoia, I'm not gonna say paranoia if it's gonna happen. I mean, this, this anticipation that, um, you know, with Roe v. Wade being overturned and, and criminalization of not just medical abortions, but just any miscarriage, any sort of, um, you know, this policing of female bodies is, is definitely this issue that's never gone away. It's just, it's just become, I'm not going to say a hot topic, but it's become more prevalent in everyone's minds with this, I don't know if you can call it a fear, but almost this foregone conclusion that's going to be, and I know that it hasn't really been that from consciousness, but it's, you know, it's, it's come back to this question about, it is kind of control societies where it's like, okay, yeah, we're, we're monitoring your, your cycle and you got to check in and you're going to be held responsible for for this uh this biological function and, and tie back to bodies right i mean this is kind of what i was thinking about when in your dark to lose book you know you have the contraries one of them is less bodies more powers of the false and i think that that mm. refrain of powers of the false gets into this question of i know coop wanted to ask about the panopticon uh but this question of surveillance and unleashing of the simulacra can become very, very much a way of eluding, evading, you know, intensively escaping, going underground, as you talk about in, in all kinds of different facets. I mean, do you have any thoughts on, on this? Yeah, two things. The first is there's this really, really important essay from the 90s that I think still gets the attention that it deserves. But I think anyone who hasn't read it, hasn't read it, needs to. It's by Phil Agri, A-G-R-E called uh, Surveillance Two Models, something like that, and Privacy and Capture. Okay. And so he says that, okay, so one response to surveillance is about privacy, which gets back to this liberal capitalist notion of you possess your own body as well as your other things as property, and that the incursion on that property is seen as a violation. And so various laws or regulations will draw the line between how much control and how alienable that property is to you. And so that's privacy. And you know that is absolutely the case in countries in which there's a lot of unification of regulation in which all the various elements talk to each other. I'm thinking of like China, for instance, Interesting. in which okay. like WePay or other things have been created like a huge ecosphere in which your personal identity and your digital currency and all these other things are wrapped up into one. And so right. these accounts of like some cities where like, if you jaywalk, it will not only facially recognize you, it will then put your face on a billboard in order to publicly shame you. And if that's not even effective enough, then they actually just fine you on the spot. And so that doesn't exist in liberal capitalist countries as much because Individual firms, especially through the data broking, brokering economy, see value in data collection. And so they treat it as proprietary and they actually kind of try and prevent too much circulation of it. Interesting. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And sell it to individual entities. So it's this total patchwork. I mean, mm -hmm. our healthcare system is such a mess because of this, right? Yes. Yeah. 
And so there are potential privacy violations that happen, but it's always sort of like arbitrary. It's certainly not uniform. It's usually like things have to fuck up a few times in a row for it to get to be a really immense violation. But it's like random people in this kind of Kafka-esque fashion just sort of get trapped in these like gaps for long periods of time, and it makes their lives really terrible. So that's the privacy model. But Agri then talks about the capture model. And then the capture model is where data or information is collected and then it's fed forward. And so then it starts in this behaviorist model to Mm. actually start shaping your future behavior and how you're treated and how people react to you. And in that way, I think things get really scary. And then it gets in the sort of biopolitical control realm. I mean, this is how Pratevi defines capture or control in a very technical way through physics. And he says, it's a patterning of the phase space. And so I think that's exactly what capture does as a model as well. You know, if you imagine like the virtual or whatever, it's like the phase space of the potential, you know, let's say actions or futures or whatever of a subject or an element, then the capture model gathers and extracts information in order to then pattern that phase space to make more things more likely and other things less. And that's precisely what financialization is done to the economy too. You know? And so that's where I feel we have two potential troubles with period tracking them. So one of it, yes, you know, if things get really bad and somehow this proprietary information suddenly starts getting leaked to the state, which, you know, some people are saying is happening. You know, mm-hmm. I saw a headline for an article a couple of days ago where they said some of the period information is being sold to data brokers and then data brokers might, you know, because they're these like third-party firms that buy yeah. and sell data. Those data brokers either maybe giving access or maybe even then selling some of that period data to people. It's probably really dirty data though. So like, I don't know who would be like filtering through it and like yeah. they'd actually be able to gather for it. But like, okay, there is the privacy risk. But then there's also the capture risk too, which is as people start doing the quantified self and they start tracking their own medical behavior based on those metrics and then the the suggestions that are being given through the apps or everything, then definitions of healthiness, Mm -hmm. um, everyday behavior, like where people walk, how much they need to walk, if people engage in certain activities or not, are now suddenly just being pushed through this, this data system. And so, you know, I can imagine that the way in which you know women and femme and people who like take chemically synthesized hormones may really suddenly change their protocols and paradigms based on what this tracking stuff is doing in response to the political situation in response to the personal situation mm-hmm. in response to the way in which it's measured and tracked and it could create like a really unhealthy situation too in which people think that they need a regular period and so they go through all these kind of ridiculous sort of personal disciplinary behaviors in order to try and make it happen i don't know there's a lot of complicated factors there i mean of course then there's like the anarchist response which has already happened some people have already published on the internet how to do abortifactants how to make yep. them and even yep. like in a very good chemically clean like industrial grade pharmaceutical way and even how to, to make the devices but then you know there's a really long history of people putting themselves to their own hormone paradigms just as a form of experimentation i mean this is paul preciado's testo junkie in which he's yeah. like i'm not doing it to medically transition i'm doing it just to see like what's it mean to be hooked on tea and then there are these other like art and DIY projects in which people synthesize their own hormones outside of even pharmaceutical products, which, you know, obviously can be very dangerous. But if you if you learn and it's a form of self-discovery, then once again, it's this mo- literally molecular micro-political approach. I'll drop one little tidbit for this too, because yeah. I've put it as a footnote in a few academic articles, but I don't think people recognize as much. 
The first antidepressant is molecularly isolated and synthesized and, and put in clinical trials in like 1953 or something. And so when DNG are talking about the molecular, I think the first immediate proximate connection literally is the world of the molecule that comes from the chemical synthesis of pharmaceuticals, but antidepressants in particular, as they start getting introduced to psychiatric clinical practice. And so it certainly isn't meant to be the limit to all of it, but that the molecular in DNG really is about chemicals and drugs. They say as much when they mention, they actually kind of are thinking about the pharmaceutical in conjunction with these other methods. I mean, it makes sense, especially for someone like Watari, who is thinking very much about the people at Laborde and the kind of their access to pharmaceuticals in conjunction with all other modes of experimentation, right? And, and you know, for him, it's always about like, for someone who was, was always physical or manual worker, maybe introduce them to music or writing. And, you know, the other way around for someone who may have always been a homebody and, and been a bookworm, maybe get them a bicycle, right? So in conjunction with these different experiments of becoming, they do, I think they say this pretty clearly in A Thousand Plateaus, where they, maybe it's in the, how do you make yourself a body without organs plateau, but I'm not sure, but they endorsed pharmaceuticals. So I think that that your noting of this definitely has a lot of cachet. And it also reminds me of how they turned to Proust, especially in Anti-Oedipus, when they are talking about sexuality, when they're talking about, you know, on a molar statistical level, there may be heterosexuals and homosexuals, but on a molecular level, right, there's the thousand, there's the N tiny sexes, there's the, we're all molecularly transsexual. It's always interesting to think about where were the sources of this, this conception? And so for you to bring that up is actually something I'd never heard before, but it makes, makes perfect sense to me. And yeah. just really quickly, I know Cooper was asking, you know, we've been, we have been going for almost two and a half hours, so we can, <laughs> I mean, and it's great. And we yeah, actually, love we're it. having fun, but I just wanted to make you know, sure that you're, we don't yeah, want to take maybe, up your whole day. <laughs> but we, maybe we let, should move towards any final questions. And yeah, I, gotcha. I, I think, I think that's good. The synthesis stuff is, I think, too much. But yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you had anything less. To well, I, well, the, the, before you ask your question about photography, if you, if you would like to, Cooper. Sure. On the syntheses, I did notice in Dark Deleuze and in A Gorilla Guide, you mentioned, and I wanted to, and you don't have to go too deep into this or even recap it, but I do want to, maybe I want to know a little bit more about, you seem to indicate, I'm not, I'm not trying to speak for you, but maybe just give you a, a jumping off point. You seem to indicate that with the metropolis, as you pointed out, and due to this hyperconnectivity, which you also kind of warn against. There is this notion that the inclusive disjunction is actually like a benefit and is not, or at least it's not in any way opposed to the kind of patchwork that goes on with capital, with the metropole. So I wanted to know a little bit about this inspiration of sort of saying, well, maybe the, there is a power in the exclusive disjunction that Deleuze and Guattari failed to consider because for the most part, the exclusive disjunction, you know, in anti-Oedipus is part of the whole apparatus of the affiliations becoming extended, the affiliation alliance becoming extended, Oedipus, et cetera. So I wanted to know maybe a little bit about this pushback against 
the inclusive disjunction alone will not save us. Maybe we could say, right. There's something there that you try to recover. And I wanted to, my curiosity was piqued by that. Yeah. So like exclusive disjunction, like you mentioned in anti-Oedipus is tied to things like anthropology. So if we imagine a very old anthropological, it's not about age, but an anthropological situation in which marriage is what defines group belonging, like something that would be tracked through a Levi-Strauss or someone like that, then, you know, a woman who under a very patriarchal system is used merely as stock between a group of men who then use that woman to join two families together will, you know, have this moment in which the woman is living with her family. And then after the marriage, she moves houses and now she's part of the other family. And so she was one now she's the other and it's exclusive. Like she was one and then she's this other one. And that this is a sort of principle for identity that works kind of broadly as well, where, you know, I am white. And so then I can't be any other races as well. And this is, or more popularly within, you know, the history of modern race science, the one drop rule. If someone has one drop of non-white blood, then they're no longer white. And that you have to pick exclusively between these two things. And so then D and G quite famously are like, well, that's a terrible way of thinking. Like, what if people are in mixes, which, you know, in 1971 or whatever, quite important. People Mm -hmm. probably hadn't really considered that very much. And that's still when questions of miscegenation are still incredibly scandalous. You know, it's still a time in which Jean Genet even bringing up Arabs or the Algeria is still something that really worries people. And it's these like colonial obsessions with like whiteness. Now, I think that the politics has sort of shifted and changed. We had this sort of like obsession with mixing and hybridity in the 90s that actually became Mm -hmm. coextensive with the sort of cosmopolitan capitalism. We had people write really good books on this too, who are saying like, well, as far as the global elite are concerned, they can move between country and country. And so they don't, they don't even care about nations so much anymore. And right. they might be sort of tied to, but they might have passports or access to five different countries. And so in that world, I think we've shown that inclusive distinction isn't always disruptive. And in fact, yeah. is a privilege or a benefit to some, mm. some things. And in fact, is maybe this sort of like partial capitalist logic of a relative deterritorialization. Mm-hmm. There still might be a chance for absolute deterritorialization, which everything is mixed. And so any coherent sense of boundary gets fucked up. I mean, that's what sort of gender terrorism might be. But even then we have all these categories that get invented to try and re-solidify non-binary, gender fluid, gender queer, like suddenly when they become tick boxes to fill out on a census or something, not yeah. to minimize people's experience because it's it's quite important to them. Once they become tick boxes, then they get sort of re-territorialized in a way and that it's and it can be inclusive. There was a big fight for this on census forms, maybe like 20 years ago, multiracial boxes. So not just like a white or an other, or that you have to pick one. Now you can check as many boxes as you want. Once you have inclusive distinction in that way, it's important to fight white supremacy on one hand, but it didn't undermine it on the other. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, I say like, at some point you need to also just sort of draw a line and force a choice and that's exclusive disjunction. And it's a little scary. It can get kind of fascist maybe if you do it Mm -hmm. wrong. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is nationalism. It's these other things, but it's also these moments where like I admitted to you all earlier, it's just like, if there's not a labor theory of value, where does the politics of Marxism go? You know, so I think there are some moments in which you're just sort of like, 
there's like a minimal criteria that has to be met and it, it may not be mixed with anything else. It's sort of like exclusive. I mean, in the book, I also, I also do this sort of contrast thing too, which I say is kind of an exclusive distinction. Like instead of doing bodies, do the powers of false. And then I say, it's also a diagonal move between the two of them. It's not meant to be like a dialectical opposition. Right. right. It's just, you're moving across one to the other. And the example that I get from that too, it also comes from um, Galloway and Thacker's exploit, which uses you know, the politics of hackers and computation to understand global geopolitics and everything in between. And they say that feminism and anti-feminism, which is say patriarchal politics, or maybe these days we just call like incels or something or MRAs. It's not like they have parallel politics in mirror opposite of each other. It's not that women want to leave the home and MRAs want women in the home or something. It's that they have completely different worlds that they want to occupy and different approaches. And so I think that it's in the garden of forking paths sort of way of the virtual for, for DNG. At a certain point, you don't go towards the MRA approach. You just go towards the feminist approach and they're sort of incommensurate or incompatible at a certain point. And so you're making a choice. Too, yeah, as you said. Exactly. Yeah. So the exclusive disjunction is that you're saying perhaps there's room for it is paired at least with, among other things, the asymmetrical imbalance too. I think that that, that makes a lot more sense. And, and it's, it's also interesting to think about Deleuze and Guattari, or at least Deleuze laughing when he talks about um, Kant's definition, right, of God as like the master of the disjunctive syllogism. It's interesting to think because, I mean, in a certain sense, this notion of bringing back the exclusive is also tied in with the theater of cruelty, but also, you know, the point's not to understand the world, it's to destroy it, right? So to a certain extent, that's partly where um, I was making sense of it ahead of time. Yeah. You know, there's this reading of A Thousand Plateaus in which everything's an admixture too. Like maybe it's mostly smooth. There's a little striation that's always in it too. I understand this in a conceptual way, but I think that people can really push that too far. And yeah. then it just gets this sort of like mix of everything in the middle. And that just for my like, my brain, I'm like, that is unrigorous thinking. Like at a certain point, it just needs to sort of like categorically be something in order for some thought to occur. That said, I still love the Nietzsche and like all the names of history, right? Where he's Dionysus and he's Antichrist and he's this and he's that. And that's the anti-familial logic that comes from the, the inclusive disjunction too. It's like you're a member of all the families at once in this totally right. bastard, perverse way. And yeah. that's kind of fun. So I would, I'd say we should still have a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess just briefly, um, I, I mean, I was kind of interested that you brought up or you cited or referenced LaRuel's non-photography because it's one that's been kind of, I've been sort of interested in just to at least, I figured perhaps this is a way to kind of sort of get an inkling of what LaRuel was doing with non-philosophy in a way that's more concrete. But I saw perhaps, I don't know, you, this was also in the sections regarding, I think, photography itself and how the black body has been you know, I guess the history of, of lynching postcards and all these kind of horrible legacies of, of slavery and so forth. But I don't know if you can talk about this. I was even thinking, you know, this, I think faciality comes into play a bit, but you know, I'm, I'm less knowledgeable about these things. I don't know if you have, maybe can speak to this just broadly, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, so the problem arises initially through something I think we've all experienced over the last 10 years and probably before it too, which is this pervasive sharing of dash cam, cell phone, and other footage of these just like scenes of execution of black men or other similar bodies. And for some people, they have a very uncomplicated 
approach to it where they say that needs to be documented because such documentation shows that it happened because people would otherwise deny it. And by exposing other people to it, they understand this indignity that is happening in the world. And that when enough people are aware of the situation, we will build a political will to rise up against it. Right. And this is like, I don't know, very classic Rousseauian politics, I think, or liberal, liberal plus Rousseau or something, where it's like humans are information processors that can come together around common interest and then force change on the world. And the problem is, is that's not really what's happened. More images circulate. And in fact, at a certain point, really smart visual theorists started saying, I think it's totally awful to see people who are like me or I consider part of my community or family being in these scenes of incredible violence. And they just show up in my everyday feed as I'm trying to like see pictures of people's kids or talk about this book that I just read or something. And that I'm just like totally traumatized by these things because like, I know it exists. You don't need to be constantly talking about it or showing people to know that it exists. And in fact, it's not giving the sort of reaction or response, sometimes that it encourages some people to go out in the street, but do we really need to be trading and sharing these as if they're like collectible or, or that people need to be shocked into reality or something? And so I jump into it. I do a little media history of lynching postcards yeah. and photographs. I look at dash cam footage. I also look at other photographs of Black Revolt that I think are beautiful and do need to be circulated, but maybe in a very particular context because they can easily be captured and used to prosecute people, whether by you know public opinion or actually legal legal means. And in doing all this, I, in a very brief period, like turned to La Ruelle because I think that he has a really elegant way of stating it. I'm no expert. So, I mean, maybe nobody is, maybe he's the only expert of himself or something. And like that sort of creative move, I feel like his approach to non-philosophy sometimes is like... um you know, take what you will from it, you know, being too much of a Laurelian acolyte might get you in trouble. Have him like blow out some cobwebs in your brain of some sedimented notions and start thinking from a new perspective. And so what I took from his non-photography, he's not interested in photography actually as a practice, you know, and maybe there's an evasive move for him too. Like maybe he doesn't uh, want to have to like go through the history of photography or look at actual photographs, but that's fine. I'm fine with doing this like philosophical distillation. He's like, what is photography trying to do? And there's a certain version of photography that we're probably quite familiar with that sees that it's trying to replicate the world. You know, there's this realist mode of photography in which it really literally seems to be taking a slice of something that happened and that is always there and reproducing it for you. It, it's sort of indexical quality. A lot of people have written about this. I mean, like Bart, for instance, is really interested mm -hmm. in the fact that like there seems to be something just sort of deeply real about its medium that we didn't have in other forms of uh, media previously. And Laurel's like, God, that's like the worst part of photography. That's like uh -huh. his argument. <laughs> He's uh -huh. like, it shouldn't be you know, taking a slice of the world. And in fact, if that's what we use photography for, it means that we are not doing anything philosophical with it. And that it's the worst form of philosophy that's just trying to sort of repeat the world as it's given or something. And so the non-photograph then suddenly is like his opportunity to think about like, what are the other ways in which a photograph can do the sort of light writing? What are the other ways that we can suddenly see the 
what a philosopher might find interesting in photography that's not just sort of reproducing a person or a place in our inability to be there at that time or to see that person for that moment. Does, does, I mean, is that what you all get from non-photography as well? I mean, it's his work is still so like mystifying to me, even when right. I feel like I understand what's going on. Well, I yeah, mean, I mean, Taylor's the Taylor's the the guy over here. I just was I kind of had picked it up because we had actually done a couple episodes on the work that Taylor had translated. Was that intro intro to non-philosophy or it, philosophy and non-philosophy? But yeah, it basically is an, an intro to non-philosophy and. Uh, and yeah, I know that Cooper wants to do the non-photography book at some point, just between the two of us. Yeah. And, and I do think that what's interesting about this resistance to the, the quote-unquote empirical camera, as you put it, right, that takes slices of the world is, again, not only that does it sort of coalesce with what you were saying about it's not about understanding the world, it's, it's about destroying it, right, transforming it. But it also, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of the way that Deleuze talks about philosophy at infinite speed and about creating concepts. It's not about reproducing the world. Science can has to kind of slow down in order to, to do that. And it has its own role. But philosophy is about problematizing, right? It's about sort of interacting with problems. And so in its very essence, it is not about reproducing the world or giving an accurate image of it in like a photographic sense. It is sort of more about ungrounding, more about sort of calling into question. And if it's not doing that, as you kind of started off our talk with, if it's merely critiquing and not creating, then, then it's then it's not philosophy or worse, you know, you could disparage it in, in better ways. So I think that that's kind of where, you know, because Laura Well has, obviously, he took Derrida and Deleuze amongst others and slammed them together in a particle collider, but there is this kind of very Deleuzian vein to it and saying that obviously, like, if that's all photography is doing, then they, then it, just as Deleuze would say, that's the least philosophical it can be, is just reproducing these slices of the world. So yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of how I would connect it up. And obviously, you know, he's he's got more to say, and that's something I hope to talk to Coop about at some point. But I, I did like you bringing that in and bringing it in with Euchromia, right? The Universe Black essay and tying all that together, as well as your reading of Roland Bard and this kind of interesting, bio. that was something that I was fascinated with, just this, uh, that notion of sort of Roland Bard's problematical uh, <laughs> fetishization, right? Of, of some of these scenes of revolt. The Bard yeah. thing is interesting that one of the photographs that he reads in Camera Lucida is that he said that when he was a kid, he got this image of a, a slave market, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's And he became yeah. so obsessed with it that he sort of like kept and collected this image, like almost like he kept it in his back pocket for 40 years. It's like, wow, what is going on here, buddy? And then in his one of his famous parts of mythologies, he does a reading of a colonial, a black colonial cadet on a magazine who was in Paris for a like demonstration in March. And so an, an indie filmmaker goes back and tries to find the cadet and ask them like, how does it feel that Roland Bart talked about you the way he did? And in doing like some of the research for it finds out that Bart's grandfather was a colonial explorer for the French government. And 
helped establish one of the colonies and even ruled it for a time. And there are photographs of him with his sort of servants. And yeah. so there's this just the complicated element of, of Bart, who like in every art school, like everyone reads his camera Lucidus, like, yeah. oh, the philosophy book on photography and the, the great thinker. And so there are all these sort of interesting naughty connections. But maybe I can end us with this uh, another place where things hit ground, which is that in two chapters, I do a reading of this brilliant book brilliant. I think, I don't know. I have some questions about it, but I think everyone should, should seek it out called uprising a teen epistolary. And it was put together by an anti-cop research collective initially as like a zine. And then it was actually printed out. I think you can get it through AK press and it's nice. It's like small enough to almost fit in a pocket. You can carry it around with you. And it is just a collection of tweets Mm -hmm. from teens during the Baltimore uprising around Freddie Gray's death by the Baltimore police. And it's such an amazing read because initially it's these forms of media, like you say, like art seems like slices the real and the least philosophical and it's sort of slowing down these almost like scientific fixity moments. But then it's taken off the internet. It's no longer like circulating. So I guess it's slowing down in a different way. And then the authors or curators or whoever we want to call the people who put them together, they black out the faces of all of the black people in any of the photographs that are associated with the tweets. And they also black out the handle of anyone between the tweets, both to keep them from being sort of prosecuted later or, or, or tracked down, but also in this sort of like aesthetic artistic gesture yeah. of freedom, as it were. And as a book, then no longer is it something that some terrible people can like find the tweet and retweet and complain about it or whatever. You just have the book and you can read it part by part, but you could also just read it all in its totality and feel like you're at that place or like talking to all these people all at once. And it, it really feels like it's no longer this photographic slice even though that's exactly what was initially put it together mm-hmm. and you get all of the problems of revolt. And it's, it seems like the most honest documentation, non-documentary of revolts you probably can get. And so I encourage people to look at this book or even just look at my reading of it. And maybe that's the sort of opacity stealth under the radar redaction that, that gets us toward that self-abolition that we've talked about. I think that's a great note to know. Once again, thanks to Andrew Culp for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very roots of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange. <laughs>